Okay, we got a great episode for you guys today. I think you guys are thoroughly going to enjoy it. Now, before we get into the episode, we got to talk to you about a couple things. The first thing being our store, bombhole.com. Buds, what do we got going on over there? We got a nice little online bodega for you. Oh, it's a bodega. It's a bodega. We got t-shirts, hoodies, keychain, stickers, bumper stickers. Yeah, the stickers are hitting. You can also find a link to our Patreon, which is a huge, huge support to the show. One of the only reasons we're able to do it is because of our Patreon. But if you don't have any money and you still want to support the show, what can you do, buds? You know what? You can subscribe. You can leave us a comment. Hit five stars. goes so far for us. It actually helps us get sponsors. So do us a favor and uh, hook up those reviews for us. Yeah, don't be afraid to write a review. And uh, with that being said, let's get into the episode. Here we go. You are listening to the Bomb Hole. It's going to be very hot. It's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. Good ball. slide down in big hills. You know what I mean? On a big, nice, burgundy snowboard. Okay, here we go again. Another day in this beautiful booth here at the bomb hole. Now, Stony Buds, how are we doing? So good, my dog. Always, always love hearing that. To my left, we have Mr. Pat Bridges. Bridges, what's happening? Not much, just uh, stoked to be in the booth. I uh, Even before you guys aired your first episode, I uh, kind of was privy to what was going on, and I uh, definitely been a fan right out of the gate, so I'm stoked to be sitting here, and it's something that, uh, you know, you know, I've had an opportunity to be here for, for a while. Graciously, you guys have reached out to me, but I, uh, yeah, I'm stoked that the timing lined up for this time. Well, we we're excited to chat with you. We know you have a ton to say in the world of snowboarding. And uh, for people that are unfamiliar with Pat, I'm going to give a brief intro. Uh, he's known as Pat the Ibridges. He spent over 20 years at Snowboarder Mag as the editor, the creative director, now founder of Slush Magazine, the unofficial the unofficial commissioner, historian, and encyclopedia of snowboarding. So uh, let's let's open up this encyclopedia, and I'm going to dive right in with my first question: Is what was your go-to big air move? in your prime during Stimulon? Well, you know, you're, you're really using the word prime loosely. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, uh, I was more of an intellectual snowboarder than an actual physical snowboarder. But I, um, I had a couple, you know, moves that were pragmatic. Um, uh, switchback ones and front fives, cab fives. Yeah, nothing really over 5.40. I never made it to 6 o'clock. I mean, there were a couple 7.20s in there, but uh, switchback one, switchback three. It's just, you know, keeping it simple and consistent. And I, uh, I think that's, rather than the tricks, I think the timing and the consistency was, and strategy was what kind of brought me some little success. Mm-hmm. It's good to hear about the, uh, the airtime moves before the, the arms became the the main kind of uh, unit holding your body up more than the knees and 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 the and the tail of the board with the tail blocks. You know, it's good to hear about the, the airtime because we don't we don't see it all that much anymore. Well, how I got into doing like uh, the Bud Light Big Air tour, uh, I kind of peaked out in '98. I got third in a Grand Prix Big Air behind uh, Borgstead and Michael Chuck. I actually got fourth, but. Um, Eric Linus got disqualified for taking his helmet off, or Bjorn did, actually. Um, so I 
I bumped into the podium spot. That was that was my peak. But I mean, like everybody else in the eighties and nineties, I grew up riding uh, pipe. But I mean, I was not great at riding pipe. I mean, I I had a couple of years I could you know get two feet out, and then that two feet out really became maybe my left and my right foot were the two feet that got out. <laughs> maybe not. But I. Uh, but everybody else was riding the pipes, so we would go out to Hood starting around 1994, and they, and they were really aggro with the camps about getting in. It was Christine Sperber and High Cascade and those guys. And But what they weren't aggro about was people hitting the jumps. And back then, you got to think they would box out the pipes, hand cut them, and what the cats would do was bring the snow down to the bottom of the pipe when they were boxing them out, and you'd have this huge mound, and they would build it into a kicker, which is where you'd see, like, Mikey LeBlanc or Peter or you know, Vile or somebody hitting these jumps, Travis, at the bottom of the pipes. Well, you know, the people I was out at Hood with would be right in the pipes. You know, a handful of us would be hitting the jumps instead because they were empty and we wouldn't get kicked out. And we would stand out like a sore thumb riding the pipes back then because we weren't good and we didn't look like rich kid campers. So we would have gotten kicked out. But jumping, and then once, uh, you know, this guy Dave Alcott, who did Stimulon, series uh he was a train park builder but mainly a contest promoter back east once he started doing big air contests we had already been hitting big jumps up at hood all summer long so we kind of had a leg up on everybody else so that's how i got into competing in big air and because dave was regional guy it was new england was the only place where there was a regional big air tour which went from like stowe to stratton to loon to waterville a um, couple other spots here and there. Watch Use It had one once, and uh, Sunapee, Mount Sunapee in New Hampshire had one. But we had a regional circuit, so all of a sudden we were getting to ride these jumps, you know, 20 days a year, whereas everybody else would only ride big jumps either in the backcountry filming or they would ride them the day before a contest. And we had contests every weekend in the winter, and sometimes we'd go to the same resort two or three times. And that led to, you know, you know, these going to, you know, Grand Prix and, and going to the, there was a tour called the Bud Light Big Air Tour um, that went Mountain Creek, Loon, uh, Sugar Bowl, uh, Mount Hood Meadows, Summit at Snoqualmie, and there'd be a concert in the parking lot in a Big Air contest. And I remember, I uh, even at one of those, I remember riding chairlift with Dave Lee and, um, you know, at Summit at Snoqualmie. But uh, bands like Dinosaur Jr. would play, Fun Loving Criminals. I saw L7. I saw Suicidal Tendencies. Dinosaur Jr. would always play. Um, yeah, no, that was that was great and whatever. I just had a very, I had a very strategic regimen with it. I just, you know, would always go and not practice. I would watch other people ride, and I'd be like, oh, I can do as good as that guy. So I would keep the energy in my legs. And also nobody would know what we were going to do. And this is like me and Adam Moran, the photographer, would you know be one of my cohorts in this. And Preston Strout would be riding with us in all these contests, C Preston from Crab Grab. Um, and we'd stand there and watch people jump and be like, oh, I'm as good as that guy. And that would be our vicarious practice. And then... Um, when we did practice, it was like I would do the trick. If I didn't land it in three times, I'd move on to a different trick, and then I'd move back to my original trick because if I – I wouldn't want to get into a rut because when I went to that being the start, I wanted to be in the mindset of like, oh, I've got this. I've done it 100% of the times, you know, or I wouldn't do it. 
But also, we wouldn't show people what we were doing, we wouldn't practice, and we'd just come out of the gate. And when they're like, who wants to drop first? We'd always be like, oh, we'll drop first. And everybody else would be like, oh, these psychos haven't even hit the jump yet. Why are they going first? And all of a sudden, we'd do a trick that was better than the tricks being done in practice. And all of a sudden, everybody else had to change their game plan. So it was, it was more of a cerebral game. Psychological warfare. Yeah. Big I, I like the fact there was a contest where it went Michael Chuck Bordstead Bridges. Yeah. I did not know that existed. That's incredible. And uh, Michael Chuck, <laughs> who knows? He might have done, he might have done like a 1080 rodeo or something. I mean, that he was, I remember seeing Michael Chuck ride for the first time on that. Great, it, the run up to the Olympics, I was doing the big airs. 97, 98 was the lead up to Nagano and it's people don't realize what was going on at the time. And then, you know, James with Jackson could tell you about it. Other others, but everybody, Peter line, Kevin Jones, you know, Joel Mahaffey, Russell, uh, JP, Jeremy, everybody was trying to go to the Olympics in the off chance that they could get the points to go because America had a unique thing. Jake Burton had sued, and a lot of people, when snowboarding was announced in the Olympics, it was going to be FIS, points-based. But the United States is very, and we've had great success with it, is very unique when it comes to Olympic qualifying in that. And slowly and surely, the skiers in the FIS have slowly, incrementally backed more regulations and hoops to jump through over the last 20 years, but or 23 years. Um, but at the time, the coalition of uh, the American industry sued to say, hey, we, not, we need to sit there and have an adjacent qualifying process to the World Cups, this, that, and the other thing. And so it turned out that it was like, you know, your best three results of five. So, you know, people like Todd were a foregone conclusion. Ross, the boss, Powers was a foregone conclusion. But there were a lot of other people. And incidentally, like Bjorn qualified to go to the Olympics. But at the time, there was a quota, and people don't realize why there's a limit to the amount of people from any one country who can go to the Olympics. It really has to do with the economics on the back end of the Olympics in that, you know, there's an Olympic village, there's a set number of beds, therefore there's a set number of beds per sport that can be in there. And at the time, you got to think, we had a robust racing team, you know, Jeremy Jones. You know, big man Jeremy Jones almost made the Olympics. His cousin, Adam Hallstetter, did. So they had to sit there and go, oh, okay, each country can only have 22 athletes in the Olympics, and that includes giant solemn, men and women, half-pipe men and women, all this. And I think at the time it might have been 18 riders. So they made a choice. They're like, oh, we'll send four women for half-pipe and three dudes for half-pipe, rightfully so, because if you looked at the international results, people like Barrett, and I think Barrett is the one who got the nod, had won the U.S. Open. Bjorn had never had a major championship podium, so they 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 played the odds. They played the stats mm-hmm. in that one. But um, were you trying yeah. to go to the Olympics? No, no, oh. no. But there was bigger, <laughs> bigger, bigger big wasn't in the Olympics. But you know, bear in mind, you know. But but everybody did the Olympics, and I remember being on that tour watching Michael Chuck, and I had heard. After the fact, you know, everybody in Canada was like, look at this goon, you know, huck till you hit, you know, he was kind of of that ilk. And then it's, he started landing. And when he started landing was 98 and he changed the game and you see it, you know, Peter was similar. Peter was a huck till you hit. And then Peter started landing and Peter line changed the game, you know, and it's, it's funny how the industry, um, 
you know, you look at like where snowboarding's at today. We ran a sequence of uh, Andy Finch, you know, doing like a 900 cork in, in the Mammoth Pipe. Um, and I remember Mikey LeBlanc being like, what's up with that gymnastics? And now everything is that gymnastics and stuff. But I remember just every mind getting blown in a bidding war ensuing between Nike and Solomon and Burton and everybody for Mike Michael Chuck. But whatever, that's huge tangent that is off the mark of my <laughs> well, short-lived big air career well, and stuff. There, there's a, hence the encyclopedia of yeah. snowboarding kind of uh, basically unloading on us right now. But I, I want to run it back to how you got your start in journalism. How did, how did you get your foot in the door and, and when did you start writing? Okay, so... Growing up, my parents always read, and I didn't really know the resonance of that till later on, but, I mean, they were always reading. Um, I'm amazed. I don't know how they could watch TV and read a book at the same time, but somehow they had mastered that art, you know. Um, but my parents were always reading, so that was sort of a subconscious thing, you know. Um, and then I was probably, without the label, I was, probably, I was probably called a weirdo, but I was probably an emo kid. I would write poetry, write poetry to girls, this, that, or the other thing. But when I was a junior in high school across the whole state of Vermont, Stone, you might have done this. There was a, for English classes across the whole state, there was a writing contest. I actually entered one of those. Yeah. Where I, did, every I think junior, I uh, did very well in one of those. Ju every junior across the state uh, got given an essay to write. And for each school district or each county, they chose one person uh to go to a writer's workshop. So uh, showed up at class one day and they're like, okay, today's the day. Um, we're doing the UVM writing award um, statewide. And here's the subject. You're going to spend the class writing an essay. And here's the subject. How is your environment going to shape your future? And that was the subject. And everybody had to write about the same thing. So I wrote this article where I was like, uh, you know, I grew up in Killington shadow of a ski area. I was a townie. Parents were ski bums. I was like growing up in Killington and then, you know, snowboarding at Pico because Killington at the time didn't allow snowboarding, but the other resort in our town did. Um, snowboarding. I'm going to use snowboard. I wrote about how I was going to use snowboarding as a part of my environment in the mountains to create a path for myself in the future beyond, you know, 05751, the zip code of Killington, you know, that was going to carry me forward. Um, similar to like a basketball would, would give a kid a gateway out of the inner city. And that was what I wrote about. And I won. I won for our county. And I got to go to a writer's workshop. Um, so that was over the summer at Johnson State College where, you know, they all the kids got to go and, and do writing workshops. And it was staying out of college, staying in the dorms. And, um, yeah, I was stoked. I mean, I had a fake ID. I would buy, you know, the people I met there booze. I met a couple ladies, you know, and I, uh, I was hooked and I was like, oh, this is amazing. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of it was beginner's luck and a lot of it was the context of where I was at, but it's fascinating that I said snowboarding and used writing so somehow that was the catalyst there. But as far as it being a career, I remember a couple of years later, um, well, I had started competing at snowboarding. I did the New England Cup with people like Todd. I was a junior. He was pro. And I met Mark Sullivan, who's a you know, lifelong – well, I met him, and that was in, like, 1989. 
Uh, he was competing in the juniors, so he became somebody I would hang out with on the weekends on the New England Cup and these contests, and I would go up and stay with him at Stowe, this and the other thing. He later went on to college and moved while I was being a snowboard bum. I did go to Johnson for a year, but um, once the snow fell, my grades fell. Mark moved out west, started, you met him, Mark, in Colorado, mm -hmm. Stone, and Mark moved out west and started a zine in the shadow, in the wake of like Blunt Magazine and Big Brother Magazine. He started a zine called Player. Uh, he decided to come back east and go to the University of Vermont, continue his studies, and I remember riding Killington late season, the Superstar Glacier, the Moguls, and uh, him and I were catching up on everything, and he's like, listen, hey, I'm going to probably come back east for college next year and I want to start an East coast magazine. And at the time there was Eastern edge, which was run by Neil corn, which was kind of like the regional magazine. And I, um, Mark's like, yeah. And I'm like, Hey, you should, you should call it East infection. You know, um, you know, that name probably wouldn't fly today, but at the time it, you know, it was what it was. Um, lo and behold, Mark moved back East. He started it. I uh, did a little writing for him in the first year, and then he came up and he was like, around the time of the U.S. Open that year, where he's like, listen, hey, do you want to move to Burlington, become a partner, become an editor, and live? We'll have a house for all the staff, me, Mike Garzina, who works at Burton, Evan Rose, who was the global creative director of Burton till a couple of years ago, uh, Lance Violette, who was the director of uh, the latest Burton movie, um, and and Mark, you know, we would all live together and create this regional magazine called East Infection. Uh, well, and that was the second year of it, and I, I started writing. You know, and it was like there were no rules back, obviously, with a name like that, there are no rules, but there were no rules to it. And somehow I had a, a voice that was just, you know, I somehow had a very you know, realistic approach to like, hey, I'm just going to talk to snowboarders. It doesn't have to be necessarily AP style. You know, it's not like I'm writing for the New York Times, the great lady. I'm not writing for the Atlantic or the National Review or whatever, you know. And because of what had been written in Big Brother and Blunt and other, you know, Skin Tight or Electric Inc., other Heckler, other, you know, magazines emerging from a regional grassroots perspective or counterculture perspective at the time, it was very liberating, and I, I just started writing. And I remember Mark was kind of like, okay, this is the guy who's going to put the words on the page. And then the Rose was similar. Rose was very – Evan Rose was very prolific as a writer too. So anyway, so that was that. And that brought me up to like 1996, 97. And after we stopped doing e EI – let's call it EI. <laughs> after we stopped doing EI – I mean, I'll tell you, I remember sitting there trying to sell ads to like – you know, Gailey and Nigel, you know, marketing directors at SIA, and they'd be like, I like how you changed the name and be like, to EI. To EI. <laughs> We're like, oh, okay. Um, I'll tell you, I mean, that's, there's, yeah. It, it was a challenging time, but it was very, it was very liberating, you know? And, and there's also, like, people who did, like, paper magazine in New York. Like, there was a lot of people, because snowboarding was so, uh, top of mind as far as what was going on with the alternative culture at the time. This, I mean, obviously with MTV and all this stuff, and it, and it, uh, it, there was like a real underground clique that looked out for each other. So even like these magazines, like Fader or, or like I said, Paper Magazine, which was like a really hipster, you know, 
300 page magazine in New York city that, that covered like the alleged gallery or the visual mafia, people like that, they would come to Vermont and, and hang. And I remember teaching, you know, Thomas Campbell, how to snowboard at Okemo on an EI trip, which I don't know if you know who Thomas Campbell is, is, but Thomas Campbell's a very prolific skateboard artist, sick artist. He's part of the visual mafia alongside like Aaron Rose and Dave Aaron and all those guys, which were the beautiful losers, alleged gallery, all that stuff. But I, um, yeah, so that we, we dissolved it, you know, EI and, uh, we did stuff like the cage. We had our run. It was kind of like, let's, Move on. The you know? cage was like a drunk tank, right, at the U.S. Open? Well, that first Open in 95 with EI when I was there, Jason, I wasn't full-time with them, but I remember we were there, and I swear this, this is the catalyst, was I remember talking to somebody, and I, uh, you know, I don't do this anymore, but I might have flicked a cigarette butt into the pipe during the finals, and it might have hit Brett Carpentier in the middle of his finals run. And I remember thinking to myself, like, Oh, God, that's not cool. That's, you know. So we were like, okay, causing a ruckus. Everybody caused a ruckus at the U.S. Open back then. So we're like, what we need to do is kind of, we need to regulate ourselves. And it actually had, (laughs) I was like, so we're like the next year, Mark and I were drawing inspiration from like, Mad Max with Thunderdome and then we're just kind of thinking that last scene in the movie Animal House where they go to the homecoming parade and they make a mockery of it with the marbles and and the shark mobile and all this stuff and we're like all right well let's just create something called a cage and I remember we go to um we went to the hardware store bought a bunch of two by fours we bought a bunch of chicken wire and Mark and I had this plan to sit there and show up at the bar later and be like yeah that was a great day You'll never guess what we were going to do. And we kind of went through the motions to say we tried. The goal was to tell the story of what we tried to do. The goal wasn't. We had no inkling in the world that when we woke up at 5 o'clock that morning, drove up to Stratton, and Jesse Huffman, former writer, rider, amazing snowboarder, he was our intern at the time. So we had Jesse Huffman. We had gone to New Hampshire, bought a bunch of malt liquor, country club malt liquor, and we had all this stuff. And Mark and I had a contingency plan, too. We had, we had rented costumes. He was the Cookie Monster, and I was Tony the Tiger. And when the cage wasn't going to happen, because neither we had a 99% certainty that it was not going to be allowed to be erected. So we, had these, we were going to walk down during the finals, walk down the flat bottom, throwing cigarettes and beer into the crowd. I mean, it's what we were doing at the time. Um, in these costumes, you know, it was whatever it was, you know, and this was all pre jackass. I mean, granted, Boozy the Clown was a heavy influence on this from the whiskey films and with everything, you know. Um, and you guys had Jason Ellis in here. Did he bring up <laughs> Boozy the Clown in the no. whiskey films? It would have been an interesting one to bring up because he was a big part of he the had a red dragon movies. tattoo. I noticed, yeah, well, Hanging of course, Sluggo yeah, but um, but anyway, so we show up, we get the chicken wire, we get the beer, we get a we. I remember going to the K2 house the night before the U.S. Open, and we're like, um, Billinghurst was the team manager at the time, and uh, we knocked on the door, and we're like, hey, you guys have a garage here. We, you know, Adam was staying there, Moran and his brother Jeff, and we're like, hey, could we use your garage? I think Engelsman was there and everything. We're like, hey, could we borrow your garage for the next two hours? And they're like, yeah, whatever, you know, and, uh, and we're like, cool. And they're like, hey, you're going to do the eating contest again on Sunday. Could we give you a board to give away? Because we would do a hot dog eating contest, whatever. 
And we're like, cool, cool. So next thing you know, the like the power tools start up, and they're like, what the fuck are they doing in the garage? It's like, Wah! you know, with the skill saw and all this stuff. We wake up at five o'clock the morning of the half pipe, drive up to the mountain, and bear in mind, we're dragging ourselves out of bed, probably hungover, and we're like, fully with the intention of them tapping us on the shoulder saying, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, no permission. Yeah, we, we, we had no plan to follow through on the plan. The plan was to get shut down and then put on the costumes to make a mockery of the finals. We're up there. We're drilling post holes. We're digging. We had gotten to the top of the pipe, and lo and behold, the very first hit of the half pipe, the deck bowed out by like five or ten feet. It was almost like it was destined that that was made for a cage or a viewing section or two by fours or a special section to be built. We're putting them in. A guy rolls up on a snowmobile. It's like, Hey, what the hell are you guys doing? And I mark or me one of, I think it was me. Mark thinks it was him. We turn and we're like, yeah, we're doing a special VIP viewing area for the Burton employees. And they're like, cool. Do you guys need a chair? Do you need a table? And we're like, we need all a trash can. You were like, we'll need, we need all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> and so next thing you know, the cage goes up. The beer comes in. We had a guy at the, we had our own PA. We had our own stickers, free beer for Vietnam vets, whatever. And we had a banner that said EI doing the East Coast justice. And we had a guy uh, bouncing. Ryan Maracek was our bouncer at like letting people in and out, checking IDs. And it was kind of legitimate. <laughs> and then two o'clock comes around and we're like, Oh my God, this is a nightmare. We don't know what to do. Mark's like, let's, let's, let's roll over to the van. Meanwhile, the EI van, which was another story altogether of what we had. We had a magazine vehicle, uh, was parked right next to the ambulance at the bottom because they're like, what are you doing? You know, you can't park here. And we're like, Oh, we got the prizes. And then they're like, no, you can't park here. And we get on a radio and if you have a megaphone and a radio in 1996, you could go anywhere. We're like, oh, we're going to be half an hour late. There's, you know, whatever. And they're like, okay, you guys can park here. We go down there, put on the costumes, get back up there. All of, There's like 50 people in the cage. Only three people in there really know it's me and Mark in the costume. So all of a sudden, it's a pig pile. Everybody just starts beating us up because we had new beer and all this stuff. Mark and I jump over the fence, and we had media credentials. And the security has already been there for hours, just making sure that the riffraff from the cage didn't spill into the pipe. And all the pros are hiking up, Brush, you know, Brushy, Neary, or Jeff, you know, Jeff Brushy, Seth Neary, Terrier, Hawkinson. They're all coming by and going up our deck. And I remember Terrier leaned in at one point and was like, you know, this is the worst hit in the half pipe. I can't believe you guys built this here, you know? <laughs> and we're like, so all of a sudden they're sandbagging themselves, you know, Brushy and Terrier ended up 15th and 16th in the finals that year, but they wanted to air over the cage because it was the best part of the crowd. But we go over the fence and onto the deck and the security's like, no, you guys caused this problem. We know we've seen your credentials before. You got to go back in there. And we're like, no, they're going to kill us. And sure enough, Amelie breaks out, the cage crashes down. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, because I'm in a tiger costume. I mean, I was standing there and some little kid's like, oh, I got a beer. And I remember putting the kid in the headlock being like, you know, give me the beer. It's mine. And I, uh, <laughs> I was like, I really need it. And I, um, the cage fell. And I remember thinking to myself, God, this is going to be like an Altamont situation. This is going to, you know, like people are going to get hurt. Luckily, nobody got hurt. Um, don't want to out anybody, but 
Joel Muzzy had thrown a chair into the half pipe during the final. Like, <laughs> stuff went down, and I Stratton ended up sending a letter to all their pass holders. Like, listen, we're really sorry for the band The Far Side who had thrown a bunch of joints into the crowd the next day or that day, and we're really sorry for the, for the cage and all this <laughs> stuff. And it's like, and I mean, it was early internet, too, because people like Matt and Zem were doing updates like, oh, the cage is going off. Oh, the cage has crashed. You know, like almost like Twitter. And, um, yeah, so anyway, so the, we ended that. Showed up in magazines, too. I remember seeing it in the back. Oh, yeah. Transworld <laughs> ran. I mean, Nick Hamilton was shooting it from the other side of the pipe. You know, talk about, you know, the proximity of everything, you know. And, and yeah, you see, like, photos. Australian photographer Scott Needham, you know, has photos that are great where you just see the whole crowd. And it, back then it was like the crowd would bleed everywhere, you know, it just people everywhere at the U S open. I mean, and I don't want to get into why that changed, but I mean, everybody on the Eastern people would come from Ohio, everybody in Quebec came down and, you know, and they would come down every year until they started checking bags for alcohol, you know, where they're like, Oh, I'm 19 years old. It's legal in Canada. And here I come down here and I can't even enjoy a beer while I'm watching the half pipe or whatever. But I, um, yeah, so, so yeah, so that happened, and we got away with it. So it's kind of like a lot had happened, and we had a, we had run our course. And then I went back to, you know, competing in big airs part-time and being a waiter full-time, and I would write a little bit for, for some things here and there, you know, like catalog copy or brochure copy for skiers. remember doing brochures for Waterville and stuff. And we stopped EI, and Brooke had started Yobi. You know, she was a subscriber to EI and I'll, you know, and she had started Yobeat. So I would do some writing for Brooke Geary and Yobeat. And, uh, and then Mark got hired to be, uh, associate or senior editor. I started as associate and then moved on to senior editor at Snowboarder Magazine, uh, because Rob Campbell was senior editor and Galbraith was editor. Galbraith moved to the Northwest. Um, Mark became senior. I think that's how it went. Rob Campbell was editor, but, um, Mark started throwing me some bylines and so I started writing for snow butter. I had my first article printed in, uh, January of 1998 and it was, it, you know, talk about intersectionality. That was, you know, January of 1998 was when I did my last Grand Prix big air contest, you know? Um, and it was an article, it was a checkout on a girl named Sabrina Sadigi. Um, that was my first byline and, yeah, so Mark just started throw, throwing me stuff. And I remember I had this idea at the time where I was like, okay, I'm a waiting tables. I don't want to wait tables. I want to do something with snowboarding. I knew I didn't have the skills as, you know, Big Air just started to get more established with the X Games, Big Air and the X Games, stuff like that. And I'd hit a couple of scaffoldings that like, you know, stuff, but it was moving in that direction. Um, I remember hitting a scaffolding in San Francisco in 96, Camp Comey. I think it was called um, Beck played stuff like that. But I, um, yeah, I, I just started writing and I remember thinking to myself at the time I was getting paid 25 cents a word from snowboarder. And I remember doing the math in my head where I was like, okay, well, you know, a good job is like 70 making $75 a day. So if I'm getting 25 cents a word, I need to write 300 words a day for somebody to justify somebody paying me a salary to be a writer. And so I started writing 300 words a day, whether I was getting paid for it or not. 
So I would get Brooke words or I would write brochures or I would, and then snowboarder, whenever they would call, they'd Mark would be like, uh, we're on deadline. We need somebody to write something. Um, I would, every byline I could get with snowboarder, I would jump on. They're like, Hey, you know, uh, there's a summer camp at Brome Ridge outside of, you know, outside of Whistler, you know, do you want to, uh, write an article about what Kale Stevens and Alan Clark and all these guys were doing there. Uh, I'm like, sure. You know, so next thing you know, I'm calling up DCP or any of these guys at like, you know, 10 in the morning or whatever. And I, uh, I took, I never went to these places, but I wanted to work and I wanted to build the muscle and the craft, you know? And I was just like, I remember within a year by 19, I, I had started writing for Transworld actually. Um, I'd done an interview with Mike Michael Chuck, and it came out in, like, uh, Snowboarder in Rookie of the Year in, like, 19, September 1998. And I remember, or 99, and I remember uh, I wrote for Transworld, and they're like, hey, we want you to be a field editor because we, want, we don't want you writing for Transworld anymore because my first feature had actually been in Transworld. Um, yeah, and that's that became a field editor. And then when the dot com bubble happened, you know, Mark, you know, the guy Doug Pelladini, who's the, you know, global president of Vans. I mean, he's top top at Vans now. He was the publisher of Snowbutter magazine at the time, and he left to a dot com startup called uh, Cross Rocket. It was Swell dot com was the surf site. So he he kind of gutted the in-house staff. He took Kovala. He took the art director, Jamie Melhusen, who now works for Tony Hawk. He took, um, Rob Campbell. He took a lot of photographers, whether it was like Stan Evans, I think went to them, but also, um, Nate Christensen, I think worked, worked for cross rocket. But anyway, so he, he pretty much just gutted everybody. And, uh, they say that I had gotten the offer at the time, but I, I didn't grow up reading cross rocket. And so I got offered a job full-time in-house in January 2000, working for Snowboarder as the senior editor. I jumped on it. But, I mean, you know, that was the dot-com bubble. I mean, there was Blue Torch, Hard Cloud. I mean, they all came knocking because in 1999, as a field editor, I wrote 35, 40,000 words from being a waiter at night from Vermont, you know. So, um, and I remember Galbraith who started the snowboard journal. Um, he was a big proponent and influence early on. He was somebody who, who had my back pretty early on. I was like, you know, Hey, get this guy to stop writing for Transworld and all this stuff. Jeff, I mean, and that's why like when Jeff started snowboard journal, you know, we kept paying him while he was starting this media outlet. He was on retainer with snowboarder well, for the first two or three years that he had the snowboard journal to help get it off the ground and stuff. But Jeff was a big influence. Um, but anyway, so 20 minutes later, that's, that's how I got Dude, to be a mind, writer. The, the memory this guy yeah. has is incredible. Out of hand encyclopedia brain going on. Um, going back to what we were just talking about, two things I'm curious about. You got Draplin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. You know, Draplin and I have battle royale. Yeah, two and of you <laughs> together in a conversation. Woo. We get we could put you guys together for the world's longest podcast. You can go yeah. for uh, nineteen hours yeah, today, two of them talking today. to each other. Yeah, just be like be like today we're going to start with question three. <laughs> it's a month long podcast. <laughs> so the things that I think are, are interesting in there, A, 
one thing I want to ask you and that kind of pertains to what you're talking about is in the Patreon interview, we asked you best advice ever received. And it kind of ties into your early sharpening your teeth days. Your <laughs> Funny you say sharpening my teeth, sharpening my fangs. The, uh, I, um, yeah, the best advice was early on my dad. Um, I mean, I've gotten plenty of great advice, but I think early on, the one that resonated with me most, and my dad was in the hospitality industry. He ran a hotel. He was a manager and innkeeper. Um, so I was kind of like, you know, a rug rat, you know, that was like uh, growing up on the factory floor. I was growing up in a hotel, and I did every, I was, a, you know, I was a waiter, obviously, later on, but I mean, I was a bellhop. I did night watchmen at the hotel when somebody wouldn't show up. I mean, it was kind of the same. It was like, my dad, as the innkeeper manager, would get calls out hours of the night and, and get brought in. And interestingly, growing up in a ski town, my best friends were from out of state. They were from New Jersey or whatever. I mean, I, I in elementary school, I was one of two boys in my elementary school class. There were six girls and two boys at Sherburn Elementary School. Um, but yeah, the best advice I got from my dad is very hospitality-centric. It was like um, under-promise and over-deliver. You know, and uh, the way I translate that to, to now and how I deal with it is manage expectations. You know, um, you, you, you really want to build that credibility and you really want to build that consistency and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to, you don't want somebody to expect something and they get something different. But if somebody is pleasantly surprised by, by what you deliver, that's great. And I mean, and, and it's a process and I can't say as I'm successful at it at all times, but it's what you aspire to do. So the advice my dad would always give is over, you know, under promise and over deliver. Okay. And then part two in regards to what we're talking about, I was curious to what running a magazine is like kind of pre-internet or pre-internet for what it is now, you know, cause it, the, the internet existed, but maybe it wasn't, it wasn't such a prevalent thing with the media. Um, yeah. What, what was the process running a magazine kind of pre-internet? Well, in the boom years, let's talk in the mid nineties, you know, um, and I've talked about this a couple of times, but in the mid nineties, you know, EI was basically a website. You know, Heckler was basically a website. You know, I mean, you had Todd Richards in here, and I wish you had talked to him about. He had a magazine in the mid '90s called Drift. Do you remember that? Yeah, I didn't know that was Todd. Yeah, that was Todd. I mean, until the fire, I think there were twenty thousand copies in his house in Breck. But it was Todd, and I forget the names of the other guys. One of them went on to work for Blunt. But I mean, they were basically the websites of its time. And snowboarding was so big. I mean, there were like five hundred or so brands. You know, and and. 500 or so brands need a place to advertise, you know, and it was a bubble and it was very speculative. So like they had deep pockets. So, um, but making a magazine back then was not much different than it is now. I mean, there's two eras. There's one, there's, I, I went started and now I'm back at the independent magazine era. And then for two little more than two decades in the gut of it, it was being part of a corporate magazine structure, which is wholly different, you know? Um, but I think what you're inferring is when, when magazines and uh, big video productions ruled the day, you know, because it's, you know, it went, um, technology kind of largely dictates how it goes. You know, when uh, HVX came in, there were a lot more grassroots video productions and stuff like that, you know, when digital. You didn't have to shoot 16 millimeters the whole time. Totally, yeah. totally. But, um, you know, for the first 
you know, certainly the first five or six years of doing Snowboarder magazine, um, Snowboarder was different than Transworld. Transworld had bought Snowboarding Online from a guy named Lee Crane. Um, and Transworld was owned by AOL Time Warner at the time, like right in the gut of the dot-com bubble. So they had a very tech-savvy foundation and structure behind them and stuff. Snowboarder, you know, till around 2008, 2009, was largely in a you-eat-what-you-kill situation online, which means the budget and resources you could dedicate to your online because they got pretty burned like everybody else in the dot-com bubble burst post Y2K. So for the first eight years that I was in-house at Snowboarder, we didn't really have a budget for the web, you know, if there was advertising. But people were still, you know, not really getting a return on their digital advertising investment for the longest time and stuff. And we didn't, wasn't speculative as far as money you know, in hopes of it paying off one day coming from the corporate overlord. So I didn't have any online responsibilities for the longest time. I mean, we were a fifth place website for those years, you know, I mean, uh, certainly Transworld had a strong web presence and I mean, you go to snowboard.com in Canada had a strong, Yobi was doing great at that time. Snowboard mag did very well. And then future came in and they were also backed by tech dollars. Um, so, but because we didn't have any real, you know, skin in the game digitally and it was pretty social media. I mean, there was always, you know, Friendster, then MySpace and then Facebook, but they weren't dominant platforms. Media, print, was still largely video magazines. Um, it was great. It was great being a writer. A little harder being a photographer. But being a writer, it's, you know, sure, I could be that nerd on the side of the slope, like, oh, yeah, what's going on here? Yeah, taking notes all winter long. But that wasn't me. Um, I wasn't a trained journalist. So, man, I would, I would just ride. And I wasn't alone. Most writers in snowboarding at the time. Yeah, you do your specific trips and you'd kind of have your keepsakes from those trips that you'd refer back to as kind of touch points. But I was lucky. Somehow I've had a lot of concussions, but probably because I didn't smoke weed till my 40s. Um, I, d I have a pretty good memory. But I, um, yeah, I would, I would not pick up a pen <laughs> from January 1st to May 1st. So I had like a five-month stretch where I wouldn't have to Right. Whereas, you know, Stone, you would have to go out, shoot your photos. But even then, you wouldn't have to, you know, catalog your photos at the end of the day. You wouldn't have to do processing. I mean, like Blada, you throw your, your film in a bag, put it in the freezer, call it good. I mean, is that pretty much how your routine was for those decades yeah, till digital the, came yeah, in? Yeah, till digital came in. And that's how you were able to get 100 days a year riding, huh? 100 days a year riding and the contests were a bigger deal for the media back then quite a bit too. Well, I mean, going to contests was kind of like uh, what everybody kind of did. We would all go and travel and see the TMs and the TMs would all go to the contests and, you know, we'd all see the sun come up every, every morning because, you know, we're not riding, we're not hitting the jumps, we're not doing this, that, or the other thing. So it was traveling, you know, going to places like, though I never really did stories in Japan too much. I didn't really do, uh, there's a lot of, I haven't been to Alaska, I haven't been to South America. I, w I wanted to always keep, you know, my compass free in certain directions so that I would always have something 
to draw me there. It's like similar to like when I, I came to the West Coast like five or six times before touching the Pacific Ocean because I didn't want the country to seem that small for me. And I always wanted something to draw me back to the to California or to the West Coast. If I, on my first trip, had touched the Pacific Ocean, the country would have seemed a lot more quaint to me. Is this a true story? You didn't touch the ocean? A hundred percent. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, it's quirky, but I mean, it, it was just whatever. And, and it's like, you know, that's why I've never been to, I mean, Mark Sullivan will always be like, well, you're not a real snowboarder until you go to Alaska. And I'd be like, oh, that's funny. You know, what was I doing for the last three decades then? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but, you know, and also I, I joke and I'm like, well, it's called the last frontier for a reason. I got plenty of frontiers between now in the last frontier to go and explore. <laughs> so, but I, um, yeah, no, I, um, yeah, it was, it was the salad days and I feel bad. T-Bird experienced it a bit. Tom Monterosso was kind of my lieutenant for a while and he was somebody who I could rely on like a rock and he, he got to really punch the passport. I didn't want to be that. And I had been on, worked for people who were the guys who took those glory trips more than, um, you know, who would take the, take the passport trips. And I, I wanted to give those up, you know, to the people who were, you know, doing the work, you know, who, who were, and you know, and I got some amazing ones, me and Nate Christensen in 1999 went on a fam. They were called fam trips where they're kind of like media stokeouts. And I did a couple of those. It was kind of a way for them while I was getting paid by snow butter before I was in house they would sit there and get offered free trips from tourist bureaus and people like that. And one of them was to New Zealand and they would dole those out. It's kind of like carrots to the, to the contributors and stuff. And I remember me and Nate Christensen went to New Zealand in 1999 on air New Zealand's dime did bungee jumping at the Nevis bungee, which I still think is the tallest bungee jump. We went the day it opened, which Sketchy. is over 400 <laughs> feet. And they ended up closing two months later. We did fly by wire, which is where you get pulled up a valley hooked to a wire and you got a turbo prop behind you and you get to fly around a valley on a fulcrum jet boating you know, whatever. But yeah, so, but the salad days were like, you didn't have to sit there and say, Oh, okay. Who's going to write the online story. Who's going to do the, on I mean, you know, the grind at our events, you know, but it was like that for everything. And then the expectation that once snowboarder did. So I, we started losing advertising to these brands that were like, you know, at snowboarder, we started losing advertising to people like Rome would be like, listen, we love you guys in print, but Snowboard Mag is a better website, and they're able to sit there and do more for us if we work with them. So I was like, okay, uh, sink or swim, how do I work around the corporate structure? So I started taking some of my print budget and dedicating it to, you know, video and this, that, and the other thing, um, just to keep up with the times. And that really made a shift. We started getting the right people in place and, and started to do better. I don't know if we were ever the best website, um, but, you know, so that was a big shift, and that's when all of a sudden, you know, it was a grind. It was the opposite of what it had been before, where all of a sudden it's like, if we're going to have a website, we should aspire to be the first people to break it, get the best content, have the best stories, which we weren't, we were, you know, at times we were successful at. But largely it was it was like three in the morning, something comes out, who's going to put it up? I mean, I you know, for people like Mary or Mark or 
at the time, Laura Austin. I mean, it is really a grind when you're in this on this hamster wheel. Because the internet is interesting. When you do something really well in this digital era, all of a sudden five other opportunities pop up. But your resources don't scale to take advantage of those opportunities. And the challenge with digital, because you don't have a finite amount of pages, like, you know, slush. We have 144 body copy pages, four cover pages, so 148-page magazine. It's not like there's 149 pages to fill. You, you have a set amount of pages. You have four issues. You have a set amount of issues. It is infinite. It is limitless what you can do with social media, what you can do with the internet. I mean, theoretically, you could post as quickly as you can hit post, you know, and, and it's insatiable in that. And a lot of times you step back and you go, at what point are you cannibalizing your own content? At what point are you doing this and, and the other thing? But the small core expectation is you're going to cover everything and you're going to do it right. You got to be the first. And that's... Before that, it was a lot more simplified. It was pretty amazing. I mean, you got to think about how simple it was in, you know, 2000, where it's like, I mean, being a, an ad buyer, a marketing guy, you almost had more challenge trying to figure out how to spend whatever part of your budget was going to video than whatever part of your budget was going to print, because you really had two options for that. And we weren't at a time when Zuckerberg, where Alphabet and Facebook were drawing the dollars from marketing and putting it and supporting, you know, people living in the Bay area and paying them exorbitant amounts of money so that they could drive the housing costs through the roof. You know, it's like more dollars in snowboarding marketing today are spent on these media outlets that give nothing back to snow. I mean, granted I benefit from it. We all benefit from it. So, I mean, it, it is a symbiotic relationship there, but at the same time, I remember talking to Burton a couple of years ago and they're like, well, we're going to do this and this with Facebook and Instagram. And I, but what are you guys going to do here, here, and here? And I remember turning to him and going like, well, how many photographers? And this is at the US Open. I'm like, how many photographers does Facebook and Instagram have on the deck of that half pipe right now that are on their payroll? Not one. You know, and it's kind of crazy to look at that. But anyway, so to, to your point, it was... There weren't a lot of magazines. We had a robust staff of senior photographers. Stone was one of them, one of the most prolific photographers for Snowboarder Magazine of all time, if not the. Um, yeah, I mean, writing's always going to be hard, whether it's for the website or not, or writing's always going to be what it is. I mean, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's not hard. I mean, we're not going for Pulitzers here. Um, but yeah, it was a lot more simple, a lot less complicated. And God, I can only think about how... I have no idea where the money went. Um, it wasn't, you know, with time, people like Times Mirror or Prime Media, whoever involved in it, FHM, once EMAP, the British owned us at a point. The money that flowed through the coffers of Transwell and Snowboarder during the glory days, because they were actually probably, you know, bringing in decent money on the subscriptions, though it was losing money, but they, you know, but it, subs always lost money till recently. But I... Um, yeah, it's it's mind-boggling to think uh, how much more complex things have gotten. Well, let's talk let's talk about the glory days with money and stuff because I know in the in the '90s and 2000s, snowboarders were making tons of money, brands were spending tons of money on marketing budgets, and basically, you know, teams and and mar magazines and just they they were just dumping money into the sport. Now. 
what do you think happened from the early 2000s from the 2000s to where it is now you know where did the money go per se it was a bubble yeah let's be real it's a bubble there's 500 brands i mean stone you can speak to this from a different perspective being owner of tech nine at the time but it's a bubble and you know people it's like what the equivalent of like electric vehicles right now you know you got a lot of people like lordstown motors or you got rivion or you got whoever obviously tesla and then you've got the established players throwing a lot of money at electric vehicles obviously not all those dollars are going to pay off in the long run for electric vehicles same thing in snowboarding everybody wanted to come in whether it was marker with dnr whether it was you know and they're not around anymore and then there was you know wall street thought it was great so Ride and Morrow went public and stuff till it wasn't so great. And it's a classic bubble situation. Like, think about how many people got burned by the dot-com bubble, you know? Um, and the people who were able to survive and were playing the long game had definitely paid off. But can you stay liquid enough to survive? And a lot of brands couldn't stay liquid enough, but they thought they had to fake it till they made it. And that's what I think a majority of those 500 brands were doing. They were throwing money around. They were advertising with not just the Transworlds and the Snowbutters, but with the Blunts and the EIs and the whoever's. And, um, and for good reason, you know, I mean, it was snowboarding in the 90s and the 2000s was a darling of MTV. Next thing you know, you have Ross, Danny, and JJ changing the perception of snowboarding in mainstream culture as being something that was, you know, you know, you, you, You'd, you know, you wouldn't allow snowboarders into your living room till the next thing you couldn't get. You wanted every snowboarder in your living room after Ross, Danny, and JJ stepped onto the podium in 2002 in Salt Lake City. Ross Powers, Danny Cass, JJ Thomas. When they won the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. With the Olympic sweep. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I think it's all a bubble. And it, but it, to the depths of that bubble are really crazy. And then the other thing you got to think about is the side of it that wasn't just speculative bubble snowboarding from like around 1985 to late 90s every year more snowboarding products were sold to people who had never stepped foot on a snowboard before in their lives which means every year the open to buy consumers i.e the new snowboarders who were getting turned on to the sport was bigger than the existing so that's what it means by the industry hasn't matured yet and you know that the buying cycle is like anywhere from three to five years. Snowboarding is actually a quick uh, accelerated buying cycle compared to stuff like skiing, partially because, you know, it's you've got it's easy to make products obsolescent because the base of a snowboard is a big billboard, and it's easy to you know from an ego standpoint to say, oh, I got a new board, you know, whereas skis, other stuff, it's smaller, mountain biking, whatever. Mountain biking has benefited from technology innovations but you got to think more snowboards were sold to people who have never snowboarded for today in turn one we are growing we are in a boom post-pandemic outdoor outdoors booming booming yep. um but surf skate mountain bike snow ski to an extent snowboarding definitely moto moto um but we also have 45 years of used gear you know, for, for new snowboarders to try out, whether that's passed along to them non-transactionally or whether it's something somebody buys on Craigslist or eBay or something like that. So, I mean, that's a challenge too. But at the same time, that's a great thing because that lowers the barrier of entry having this economical product. So, I mean, it is what it is. But when you're in an era where each year 500,000 new setups are getting sold, that's 500,000 new boards, boots, bindings, actually 100,000, you know, a million bindings because you got your left and you got your right. But 
Um, <laughs> nice, nice correction. <laughs> yeah, are there that many made each year? Huh? No, back then. Oh, back then. Gotcha. What are we you at right think now? If you what have, what, what are we at right now? Right now? All right. So empirically speaking, I'm working on this. So when I say empirically, like data, mm-hmm. let's let's say data I've seen, and I'm I've seen this recently. I'm going off the top of my head, and a lot of this has to do with skier visits. I'm actively waiting on the data from SIA, Snow Sports Industries of America. But as far as what's coming out of the National Skiers Association, so last year, winter uh, 2021, was the fifth most skier visits on record. And if you go back four years ago, it was the third or fourth most skier visits on record. Now, what happened three or four years ago was the Icon Pass was introduced. And skier visits is one person going to one resort one day, whether that's buying a ticket, whether that's pulling out your season pass. So we're in great shape. I personally, I might be going over my tips here, but I also think some ski areas might be underreporting those numbers last year. But then you look at places like uh, the Pacific Southwest. Pacific Southwest is Arizona, Utah, uh, maybe not Utah, but Arizona, Nevada, California. 47.5% 47.5% of all skier visits are snowboarders. Really? Almost, wow. Almost half. Almost one uh, out of every two. Now, the one thing that makes that, that corrupts that number is if you're a skier, you might have an uh, epic pass. And there's no epic passes in SoCal. There's two epic pass locations in, in Tahoe. But if you're a skier in Southern California, you're not as inclined as somebody who surfs, skates, and snowboards to go to Mountain Eye or to go to Bear or to even go to Mammoth. You're probably going to fly to you. Aspen, wherever. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then you compare that to Vermont, where it's like 16% snowboarders. Oh, is that the ratio? Jeez. Wow. Well, and that's the opposite effect. I deduce that that's the opposite. Whereas if you are a snowboarder in New England, you're probably going to travel out of New England to go snowboarding. Whereas if you're a skier in New England, you're probably going to stay skiing in New England. Mm-hmm. Same thing. If you're a skier in California, you're probably going to travel. So, I mean, it evens out in, in, the, in the mix. But... Um, and that's where it's interesting. I mean, people use California as a punching bag. I mean, I worked for Snowbutter Magazine. People for years would be like, why is Snowbutter in Transworld in Southern California? I'm like, well, where'd you grow up? You know, our parents for Snowboarder were Powder and Surfer Magazine. We got to be where our parents are. Transworld was Transworld Skateboarding. It is what it is. But also, if you look at the advertising base with the Quicksilvers, the 32, I mean, people could say it about Transworld and Snowboarder, but why is... 32, why is Vans? Why is everybody in Southern California? But when you look at the data, the most important and the biggest population regionally of snowboarders is California, Southern California in particular. And that's something that people who say, you know, we should be in the mountains, 100% we should be in the mountains. I would love being in the mountains, but I get to snowboard more for living in California because I get paid to travel to go snowboard, you know. Um, yeah, it, but anyway, so that's where we're at right now is as far as the numbers of snowboarders, I don't know. I have it, but I don't have it in front of me, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of fascinating to realize how how many, like the population of snowboarders in California that you, you kind of just put California on your back right there. Yeah, true. With, with uh, you know, people talking shit on snowboarders in Southern California and... Uh, well... You know, and there's also a lot of things that are positive. Snowboarding is growing again. You know, and a couple of years ago, the New York Times, while it was the Boston Globe, came out with an article that said, oh, snowboarding's in decline. And perennially, I'll get calls from mainstream media, whether it's like uh, New York Times or whoever, to get quotes. I'm kind of on a couple of PR people's 
Rolodex for stuff like that. And I remember talking to a guy who's like, hey, do you have anything to say about snowboarding being in decline? And I'm like, well, listen, it's, it's not an absolute because this is a weather-dependent sport. And if California is in a drought, because there's a higher percentage of snowboarders considerably than any other region in the country. And if California has one to 2 million less skier visits, then that's 1 million less skier visits in the aggregate for the whole nation. So there is no absolute. And at the time, you know, snow California was in a California is kind of in a perpetual drought. I mean, there will be big snowfalls and stuff. I mean, right now we're dealing with the fires. Um, and anybody who's gone snowboarding at a spot with a trail called Third Degree Burn, well, that spot wasn't always called Third Degree Burn. It's because a forest fire has gone through there, you know. But, um, yeah, the as far as, like, where the sport, you know, was at in sort of the heyday, the glory days, you know, again, it's a bubble. It's a speculative. People threw money at the sport thinking it would pay off. Every brand needed a pro rider, so there were some bidding wars that were happening here and there. I mean, and then look at um, if it penciled out not to be the man and not to be, you know, a numbers cruncher, but if it penciled out for forum, you know, to have the best team in the world and to outpace everybody else with how much they're paying the JPs, the Jeremys, and the Peters, they'd still be in business. And that's the maturation of our industry. But the other side of it is by the 90s, snowboarding, I mean, a lot of the people who were great at snowboarding in the 80s, you know, we were very fortunate to arrive at a talent like Terry Kidwell. He was just an uncanny talent, like a Terry A or like a Travis Rice, like a Danny Cass. Just one of these, like a Brushy, one of these people, even Brushy. We were lucky to have those talents early on. Lucky to have, from a number standpoint, a Terry A pop up. But for the most part, the people who were celebrated were the people who, people who elevated themselves to being a pro, were, were the people who have lived in a mountain town. They actually went snowboarding more than other people, or they were the best person in the region. Were they the best snowboarder in the world? No, but you know, the magazines needed pages to fill, you know, and it was largely, you know, you were a great snowboarder. If you had a great photographer to shoot photos of you, because you were only doing five foot airs and that's off a kicker. I'm not even talking about the two foot airs and the half pipe, you know, like, I mean, on his best day in the eighties, Palmer went seven feet out. On his best day in the 80s, Brushy went six feet out, you know? On his best day in the 80s, Jimmy Scott went six inches out. <laughs> six inches. <laughs> so. And same with Bert Lamar. But, but, you know, snowboarding in the 90s through 2000s, we didn't have, it's almost like welfare. It's almost like uh, Social Security. That's weird. I'm going to get beat up for saying that. But we, we only had one or two generations of riders to support with marketing budgets back then. Now you got amazing snowboarders like Jamie Lynn and Brian and Gucci and, you know, who are in their mid to late forties, you know, um, you know, and then you got young riders, you know, you got, you know, you got, um, 12 year old girls from, you know, or nine year old girls from, uh, Colorado who are ripping and getting some sort of support. That's a long swath of people who are at the snowboarding pro snowboarding trough. And then on top of that, you do have money going outside of the industry that isn't supporting photographers that aren't supporting, you know, riders necessarily. And those dollars go to these media platforms out of Silicon Valley, you know, which is alphabet, which is Google and YouTube or Facebook, which is Facebook and Instagram. So, I mean, 
the dollars flow back and forth, and then there's POP, which people don't realize is POP. But I'm working on an article in 1996, and I believe this is the number. I might be off like by 300 grand. It's either 4.3 or 4.6 million ride snowboards. You can get it. It's in the annual report because they were a public company at the time. Spent $4.6 million in 1996 on marketing team and promotions. Damn. $4.6 million. Talk about that. But again. You've looked that up. You've seen that. Oh, number. you can Google it. It's in, uh, you know, it's in uh, shareholder report, the annual report. Um, That's a good budge. They're spending that much on the book this year, <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> They're, they're actually they're actually printing the book on money on money. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, just that right there. But again, there's a reason why Ride is no longer a public company, and there's a reason why Ride has changed hands. It's just a maturation and stuff. And then the other part of where the dollars go currently is like ninety percent of the industry is not an island. And when I say not an island, like Snowboarder Magazine, who I worked for up until January 5th of 2021. Snowboarder Magazine, very successful if it was an island. Always very successful. Snowboarder, very successful if it was an island. Not a part of the, of an, it's not an island, which means you don't eat what you kill. If you don't eat what you kill means um, you, you, might, you might kill 10 deer, but you only get one deer to eat because other people don't know how to kill a deer. So somebody's got to feed them. Me- and meaning it's, bike it's, magazine. It's a dis. Well, every other yes, magazine. Yes. If, mom, taking your if deer. mama's sick, everybody's sick. Yeah. Well, it's redistribution of wealth. Yes. You know, and, but then you look at every brand and when we've gone through our corporate changes in my past life at snowboarder, we got a lot of a pass, you know, from the industry itself, because the industry itself, when we went through our last transition to the ownership of AMI, Everybody in the industry was going from being under venture capital to being under another venture capital firm, or in the case of like, you know, Volcom going from KKR to Authentic Brands Group or whatever. Everybody has dealt with it, and you can kind of count. You guys are an owner operator, you know, an independent. The brands that are the independents, I mean, Never Summer, Tracy Kennedy, you got to respect what that guy has built. You got to look at what Mike West. Yeah, 686. 686, an amazing one. You look at Jesse Grankowski, you know, like. C3? C3, another perfect example. But C3 is, is in a similar boat in that some parts of C3 are more successful than the other parts. And then through the arc of C3, you know, they've, they've all, they're all successful. But at the same time, they've all benefited from being part of a group. Of a group, you know, when one brand's down, the other's up, so on and so forth. And that's how it all equals out in the wash. But, you know, um, the dollars don't necessarily stay within the sport when you're in a corporate structure. And that's where a lot of it goes. And unfortunately, you know, there's people who need to make their numbers. And those people aren't really regular or goofy. And they aren't really tied to any one part of the, they aren't necessarily, like, you know, you deal with Sol- Solomon Skews is down, Solomon Snowboards feels it. You know, and that's just so the reality. Let's get, into, let's get into the, uh, the reality of what's going on with, with the, the, what happened with Snowboard. Because I know it changed hands so many times. It, it was, and it was owned by big companies like you've been naming. And I, I'm curious, like, specifically... What's happening in these big fucking corporate meetings between, you know, when you're, you're sitting in there and you're, you're basically the person that is defending 
I don't want to say core, but the heartbeat of Snowboarder Magazine. And then you're talking to people that are in fucking suits that are like, we need to hit this number. This is what we should do. That have absolutely no fucking clue about what's going on in snowboarding. Well, that, there's there's not a lot you can do. Yeah, what do you say? And it's what's, the what's same happening? thing in every brand. I mean, Stone, you went through it time and time again with, you know, the transitions of ownership with Tech Nine. There's not a lot you can do. I mean, you could do your part, but at the same time, do you? Is it better for you? Do you want to martyr yourself? Because you don't know who they're going to get after that. Because too many brands, what really, what really affects a brand is when the people who could, you know, do what they can with the resources they're given, um, fight from the inside. But if those people who are fighting from the inside say, fuck it, I can't deal with this shit anymore, they leave. Odds are, you know, if you're a squeaky wheel, the brand is the corporate overlords are going to get somebody in there who's going to be a yes man. And that's when the slide really starts to Got happen. Got it. There's no pushback on the corporate overlords. Yeah, and I, I look back and I think to myself, I mean, first of all, and this happens, this is rife. This isn't just a snowboarder, trans world, whatever problem, yeah. but this is rife across the board within the, with the industry as salespeople. Salespeople have the ear, and, and the corporate overlords are so scared shitless of disruption with the sales. So ultimately, the people who are on the sales side, and if they're corruptible, or if they don't get it, or if they don't ride, or whatever, whether this is at a snowboarding magazine or at a snowboarding brand, that's where the problem really lies, because they're the ones who hold the real power, because everybody needs to make their numbers. And a lot of people high up on the food chain will look the other way, even if people, this is how corporate fraud happens and stuff like that and malfeasance happens because everybody, when you're, when you're dealing with the numbers and the sales numbers, you know, it's not just the commissions that the rep gets if he hits his numbers, whether it's a snowboard rep or a sales rep for an advertising in a magazine or something like that. The person above them has a set of numbers that the people below them who are doing the actual physical selling, if they all hit their numbers, then this person gets a bonus. And then the person above them gets a bonus. And so it's like ignorance is bliss. They'll cast a blind eye and they'll keep real corrupt individuals and real kind of nefarious individuals in place because they're selfish and they want to get their numbers, which is why what I'm doing now I am very much involved in the sales side and very hands-on. And I've had some success even when I was at Snowboarder with certain reps being involved in the sales side, but there were others that I wasn't that involved in. And unfortunately, if the rep doesn't know what they're selling, then they're going to just try and figure out ways to create things that they can sell that they get. Now, that's the same with products. That's how you end up with products that are kind of, you're less stoked on. That's how you end up with, you know, I mean, I did an interview with Jake Burton Carpenter, and he even said, you know, I, I might have made the mistake to hit our numbers and to meet the ambitions of people I worked for by selling to big box originally and stuff like that. He even was gracious to, to admit that. But it's like that's one part of it. And so the challenge becomes do you stay and pick and choose your battles, which is largely what I did. I mean, a couple things happened with me. I mean, I ran a good business. You know, people wouldn't necessarily know that, but that obviously became very apparent when, you know, I was the one that was kept throughout all the stages. Um, part of that's because we were creators ourselves. We were able, I mean, there's two types of business. There's creators and there's delegators. 
you know, if you come up, we, we never had budgets. We were always in a perpetual situation where we were under the thumb of the accountant. So, you know, you make do and you, you know, T-Bird picking up a camera, starting to shoot photos. That was, that, that benefited the business. You know, we were able to send one person to write the story and shoot the photos and save money on buyouts and this, that, you know, you know, I remember one time we had somebody come in as a publisher who's like, you shouldn't be putting up the banners at your events. And I'm like, well, how do you think, how do you think the events are able to help subsidize the other parts of the business that don't make as much money? It's because we aren't sitting there outsourcing. Um, and that's, you know, if you have the big budgets, you can be a delegator all day long. But unfortunately, as the budgets shrink, you know, all of a sudden you're going over budget <laughs> because you, you only know one way, which is delegating. But um, snowboarder, this is a key part, and this is part that a lot of brands deal with. Um, and I think snow as a sport, the original sin of the sport of snowboarding was to not take a page. There are a couple things, but we we sold out early on, which, you know, you can't really fault everybody back then. I mean, it was like, you know, but we sold out early on. I mean, it started with Tom licensing his name to Brad Dorfman and Vision Sports. So all of a sudden, and we all know what that led to. That led to Craig Kelly and the battle between Burton and Sims over Craig Kelly and his, whether he's going to ride for one brand or the other. That was wrought by the fact that Tom Sims, Sims Snowboards, had licensed the name to Vision Sports. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to, to fault, but I'd say the Balmas and the cousins and the people who founded Transworld and Dan, the Danas, I think it was Dana was the family that started um, snowboarder under skateboarder and surfer and action. Now I, you know, they, they, they put in the time, like at one day with the bomb hole and with me with slush one day with you, with the bomb hole, you're going to come to a point where you're like, well, are my kids going to be sitting here doing the bomb hole in 2030, <laughs> 2035, you know, is there going to be a 13 year old Grenier's in there going, <laughs> Going, here you go. Let's pivot. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, um, yeah, that's that's the question. I mean, our stone, are your dogs going to be sitting there? Sitting there? Um, I'll be 125 <laughs> sitting over here. <laughs> so um, good, my dog. <laughs> yeah, you know, you will be in 2035 because you're 150 now. But the thing is, um, you get to a point, you don't, you, know, you don't want to uh, – you don't want to forsake them, but they didn't have a succession plan. And, and here's the deal. Once you start down that path of selling, unless you can sell to the right partner out of the game, I mean, look at Vans. Vans is amazing. You know, VF Corporation, by all accounts, is a great steward of that brand. And they've got great people like Doug Palladini. But that's the exception. That's not the rule. It's rare that somebody can find a corporate environment and be able to thrive like a brand like Vance. And that's awesome, you know, and now, you know, by all accounts, K2 and Ryder in, in, in a great place with, with their structure, you know, um, Amer sports is in good place and stuff, but it's like, it's hard And how it happened with snowboarder is right when I was getting in snowboarder had gone from, I think it was called better living or something under Dana and all them. They had sold to a company called Peterson publishing, Peterson Publishing was in the automotive. That's how we got adjacent to like Motor Trend and magazines like that. Peterson quickly sold to EMAP and combined with EMAP, which EMAP was British and they did FHM, they did Teen Magazine, all this stuff. And then it went to Prime Media and then it went to Source Interlink and then it went to uh, under a company called Golden Tree, which was a venture capital company. And, and it was under 
golden tree that we were able to buy Transworld Media and Transworld Media in that time had gone to Times Mirror from Transworld Publications to Times AOL Time Warner actually and from AOL Time Warner to Bonnier I mean all these things I, I want to thank you I got checks all the way from Peterson till the end <laughs> <laughs> it would always change I did American media there I saw every one of those <laughs> come across the you mailbox you might have even gotten one that said A360 the I last did. couple I months <laughs> but and I did as well but but the interesting thing is <coughs> Every time it's like when you're flipping houses, you put a coat of paint on there, and then when they get it down to the studs, they're like, oh God, we overpaid for this thing. You know, there's dry rot or whatever, because everybody shines up their books to get the most value they can when they subsequently sell, sell, sell. And then when people get in there and they take it down to the studs, they realize, oh God, we just bought a lemon. Not bought a lemon, but we overpaid. Overpaid. Let's say we overpaid. And that's a perpetual cycle where all of a sudden, if you're overpaying, and the numbers don't quite add up because you're putting your best face on your on your numbers financially. Um, if the numbers don't add up, then all of a sudden the budgets get constricted. Somebody's got to pay the piper. Somebody's got to make up the difference. And this is the same you saw with Tech9. This is the same with every single company subsequently. And it's like hot potato and that potato rots more and more and gets hotter, hotter, hotter as it goes down the line. And it's just because it's a healthy business, it's a sustainable business, but no one part of it is an island. And it's just been inflated to the mm -hmm. point through subsequent sales to get to the point. Now, the latest one with American Media, um, a lot of reasons why they, they everybody's got the ambition, they've got their number in their head and all this stuff. American Media, from what I understand, did not pay for the enthusiast network, which is the group of surfer, surfing, snowboarder, trans world, trans world, skateboarding, bike, uh, new schoolers, powder, uh, trans world moto. They didn't, they didn't transactionally pay. What they did is they absorbed the debt and, and it was eight to $10 million worth of debt that they just took off the books of the venture capital firm that just wanted to cut and run. They had tried to sell it, all this stuff. Um, they made an offer that was, you know, they had gone, back and forth, you know, everybody had an opportunity to buy it. And unfortunately it's when the doors closed. So they all came back to the table and too little too late, but, and the doors haven't fully closed, but, um, they, they absorbed eight American media, which let's just say it. It's, it's, it's American media owns national Enquirer, They own men's journal, <laughs> not great corporate citizens. I mean, I love driving to work and hearing that the, guy who ran our company was testifying on the floor of the Senate and stuff, David <laughs> Pecker for, you know, doing Trump's bidding, but you know, somebody's going to do it. You know, somebody's going to be the editor of snow Bunner. Somebody's going to do this, that, and the other thing. And, and it is, you know, I had my reasons, but the, um, they absorbed $8 million worth of bad debt, took it off of Golden Tree books. Golden Tree wiped their hands of the whole media business. They had done it with the Discovery Network with all the automotive titles 12 months previously. And in that $8 million of bad debt, but what people don't realize is, and this is where Snowboarder was the thing that emerged out of it, is historically an old media model was you sell subscriptions very cheap, $10 subscriptions. You lose money. It costs like $30 to fulfill on those subscriptions. You got to print, you got to ship, you got to do this, that, and the other thing. But the thought was, you know, the more subscriptions you get, the more dollars you'll make in advertising because your circulation grows. Now, the problem in 2019 at the time is there's a ceiling to how much people will pay for an ad. 
you know, you could have, I could have, you know, a million slush subscribers at $10 a subscription or whatever. I could have huge distribution, but nobody's going to pay more than a certain amount for it. So what you do is you right side your distribution to the stomach of the marketplace. And that's what a lot of people have done to, to find a model that's sustainable in print moving forward. And that's what I had done in 2017 when Snowbutter moved away from newsstand and traditional subscriptions, started doing the premium subscription package. And that's why the trans world wasn't able to emerge. And I remember having that conversation with Nick Hamilton, like, hey, you've got to revamp your subscription. I mean, at the time. Evolve or die. I went with me and Nick were sitting in a meeting and uh, it was in 2018, in September 2018. And I'm looking around like, why am I in a circulation meeting? I had already built an independent distribution network. We had already started doing premium subscriptions, but I was sitting there with Transworld Skateboarding, Surfer, all these people, and there were slides on the board, and there was always an asterisk next to Snowboarder in there, and it was like, here's how much Transworld is spending. Subscription acquisition alone was $50,000. They had around 20,000 subscribers at the time, which means $10, 200 grand of revenue, that's pretty, pretty good, but they were spending $2.50 of that $10 subscription just to get the $10 subscription in marketing and sending out the blowing cards and sending out the direct mailers, whatever. And I remember walking out of there going, God, four times a year, you get four issues a year and it's $7.50. You pay for the shipping, you pay for the printing, you pay for the buyouts. I'm like, Nick, you are, you got to stop with that model if you want Transworld to survive because you guys are losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on print. And anyway, so that's me, me definitely opening, you know, being pretty forthcoming. But, you know, that's the reality of it. So of that $8 million of bad debt, $6 million of that was subscription fulfillment with no revenue coming in. The checks had already been cashed to keep the lights on in the building, pay the lease. The building was a million dollar a year lease. That money, that, that $10 per subscriber, that had already been spent. So they still had $6 million just to print and fulfill those hundreds of thousands of subscriptions. So I was like, that's how that went down. Mm. Um, and American media, whatever. They're, I mean, everybody's, you know, yeah, you do have a couple bad apples, but they were good people, and they just got offered a deal they couldn't refuse. They got something for free, and, and if it doesn't work, it's a tax write-off. It's a perfect storm of what the bullshit that you deal with. In court. It's, a, it's a problem that's rife in America, and there's too many businesses, and we all enable it by investing in this, that, in the financial sector and stuff. But a lot of, a lot of business and commerce in America is driven by businesses that don't make snowboards, they don't make magazines. Venture capital, their business is making money. It's not making a profitable magazine. It's not making a profitable binding company. There are too many businesses in America where their product is the dollars that they bring in by buying and selling and flipping companies and, mm -hmm. and creating efficiencies in those companies, restructuring those companies, or in the worst case scenario, or even licensing out, buying a mark and licensing it out to other people, which invariably gives you more overhead than somebody who, who's proprietary with everything they do. But um, yeah. So whatever. I mean, snowboarder was in Transworld and all that was just a cautionary tale. I mean, and we all look back and Nick would say the same thing. The worst thing to happen with our business, uh, maybe not quite as much for Transworld, but certainly for snowboarder was buying Transworld Media. Because all of a sudden, the dialectic in the with the with the sales and with sort of the endemic culture was all of a sudden. Um, hey, here's why. You know, we were all you know, rowing in one direction saying, here's why, 
you know, what we got to do to, to maintain and do the best product possible. And then Transworld was doing the same thing. And next thing you know, even primarily from the ad sales side, it's like, oh, instead of being like, here's why you don't advertise in Transworld, it's like, hey, here's why you got to advertise in both. And all of a sudden, it's just like when you artificially try to create delineations between the two products, whether they're organic or not. And then you try to also at the same time on the back end, try to create shared services and efficiencies to improve the bottom line. And it's all bullshit. And I could have walked away from it, but I didn't. I mean, somebody, somebody's going to get hired to do it and stuff. Um, I think in, in the, in the wash, I mean, why I was able to survive and why I'm, you know, slush is doing what it's doing is, is in the, in the wash, you know, I like to think, and maybe it's my own narrative, but I like to think I was able to navigate it pretty well and do more good than harm. But I mean, I was handed a set of cards. And frankly, I did not, there were a couple of key moments. I mean, after 2019, January, 2019, tough day, spending the day going from seven in the morning to seven o'clock at night with T-Bird was a tough day when he got let go. I mean, he's my dude. You know, and I've had to be in those situations a couple times, not quite like that one, but that's always hard, but that comes with the territory. You've had to let people go at Tech Nine Stone and stuff. You will have to let people go. I mean, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm making a hand gesture as if <laughs> Grain has got a fire stone. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's the owner, dog. He ain't firing anybody. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I'm kidding. But, um, you know, um, but no, I mean, that's a tough day. But at the same time, there were moments that I, that there were, there were cards put in my hand that hadn't been put in my hand before. And I was able to make some things happen at the 11th hour, but nobody plans for a pandemic. And the fact that no matter why the furloughs happened, when they happened in, uh, you know, October of 2020, as far as the last chapter of, of this time, um, you know, people aren't buying the National Enquirer you know, at the checkout counter. When you got to the checkout counter in the pandemic, you could not get your stuff on that conveyor belt fast enough. And similarly, people, when you did make it to an airport, you weren't hanging out in Hudson News buying men's journal, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where, you know, shit floated to the bottom. Snowboarder was like your identity for 20 years. Was it pretty crazy to bounce and start slush? Scary? No. No, and there's a couple things. So just so everybody knows, um, and I started a little bit before. I mean, I was put on a furlough list on October 16th, 2020, like the rest of our staff with the exception of, you know, our online editor at the time because he, we have a connection to the do tour, so they needed something and they had ideas. But And that's when I, you know, made overtures to buy, you know, Snowboarder Magazine and I uh, – Tried to buy Snowboard Mag, you know, and and because of some other media outlets, it, whatever. And and Snowboarder's the most successful part of the building there, and they wouldn't they want to sell it as a group. You take the most profitable part of the business out. It's like the mortgage crisis, you know, with the, you know, um, derivatives. You know, you take the people who, you know, you take the people who paid the mortgage out of the out of the stack. It all falls down. They wouldn't sell Snowboarder. That's the short of it. Um, snowboarding is more my identity than Snowboarder Magazine. You True. Know? So when I got announced on the furlough, I did try and buy Snowboarder, and they actually, David Pecker, the, the ghost in the machine at uh, American Media, was actually, like, through those negotiations, was like, oh, snap, uh, which was to license or buy Snowboarder. 
he was like, let's get this guy off of furlough because he, he's, he's got something. He knows what's going on and he's probably going to, he's going to, you know, the, the, it's best for us to keep him close. And not let him go out and start. And when they didn't have the ambition to follow through on, you know, supporting the culture and supporting the industry on any level, you know, beyond the base basic level i uh i was like whatever the time is now i had put some i had always i had already you know i knew what needed to be done and i had been doing it long enough that if whatever the timing was right i think if trans one and snow butter were robust it is much harder to launch something mm-hmm. and there are challenges you know straight up i mean the timing now i mean you guys see it it's hard to build that sort of scale on social media really hard i mean it is phenomenal how big, I mean, it is, you know, and some people do keep advertising with Snowbutter because the fact of the matter is the Snowbutter magazine social channels speak to more people who actually, you know, weekend warriors and such outside of the echo chamber of the pro core. That's the biggest, the biggest reach of anybody to actual people who ride in the history of snowboarding, frankly, with the exception of like X Games or the Olympics. True. You were smart to really learn the business inside and out. That's, well, that's why that's where we survived. And my yeah. my ability to not not necessarily, but my ability to know the numbers and manage the numbers and to be. I mean, in two thousand seventeen, it was every intention of the guy who under Golden Tree, this guy Scott Dickey, who was the president of the company under Golden Tree, which was the venture capital firm that owned us before American Media. It was every in, intention of that guy that Snowbutter was going to wither and die. I mean, people look at it and there's a redundancy on the org chart that they don't quite get. This guy, Scott Dickey, actually used to be a sales guy for Transworld Snowboarding. So there's a little bit of a nepotism there. And he put out a press release in January 2017 that was like, Snowbutter's not going to keep making magazines. And I was like, oh, really? That sounds like a dare. And Snowbutter was the last magazine to come out of that building. Truth. So, yeah, I mean, I carved an island in the business that we were it actually gave us a lot of flexibility. It took us out from underneath certain printing contracts. So we were able to get away from, you know, newsstand distribution where the reality of newsstand distribution is eight out of every 10 magazines that you see on the grocery store news rack gets thrown in the trash. Today, we're going to be talking to you about Bub's Naturals. Huh, Chris? Let me tell you about their little apple cider vinegar gummies. I've been chomping these things down. They are great for your gut biome, your gut health. Uh, I know that they helped out Angie, your wife, right? Yeah, they helped her out a ton. She takes them every day. They fix some stomach issues she has. Loves the taste as well. They're delicious. Yeah, it's not like you're choking down some gross. It's like eating candy, basically. It's like eating but candy. But it's good for your stomach. Uh, they also have their kind of token product, which is right in front of me here. This is the collagen protein. We like to mix up some shakes after working out, and it just keeps you, as you get older, bored and longer, you know, we start to deteriorate. This old chassis Ain't running like it used to. You need things like collagen to keep it going, huh, buds? Yeah, I'm as old as it gets out there trying to snowboard and keep up with these young kids. Collagen is the glue that keeps your body together. So if you're taking it, it's just going to help you feel better, recover quicker. Great product. And it's a great crew, right? They're backed by snowboarders. Absolutely. Owned by snowboarders. And if you are if you were born in the 1400s like Eastone, you need collagen to maintain. I think my body would probably just explode. It would explode. If I didn't have collagen in the system. Exactly. So yeah, great. This, the company's got a great story owned by snowboarders. You know, Bubs was a Navy SEAL who, you know, lost his life saving others. And this brand Bubs is made to honor him. 
So you're supporting a great cause. 10% of all proceeds go to charity, which is great. You feel good. You're contributing to a good thing if you support these guys. And you can head on over to bubsnaturals.com if you want to support this incredible brand, huh, Buds? Yeah, you can get 20% off with the code BOMBHOLE. Again, head on over to bubsnaturals.com, use promo code BOMBHOLE, and get some collagen in your system. Okay, let's change gears here. We've been we've been hammering on that topic. Now, um, you know, I want to talk about your snowboarding as of late. It kind of transitioned into, uh, you know, the knees went out and you started using the arms to do hand plants and tail blocks. And uh, anybody that knows you um, has seen you do those maneuvers. And that leads us into a guest question from none other than Lucas Magoon. All right, what's good, Bone Hole? Everybody, I got a question for you, Pat. How about uh, who's the top three tail blockers of all time? And when is the most I ever pissed you off? Okay. Great um, question from Gooder. <laughs> all right, that's a two-parter. So the first one, I would say Forrest Bailey. I would say Dustin Craven. And I got to go... Oh, this is a tough one. It's going to break Gunnar's heart. Yes, it's going to break his heart if you don't have him in there. I got to go with Scott Steves. Oh, I'm glad you said that. If you didn't say that, I was going to say your answer is actually incorrect. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> um, but, I mean, Gunnar can do some things. Now, the most Gunnar ever pissed me off. He, we were at Super Park. It was the year of um, That's It, That's All, because Travis Rice had brought in the helicopters, and we had a hip session. Uh, you might have shot the cover of Scotty Lego doing a big backside air. It might have been Huggy. Or I don't know who shot the cover. No, I that think one. I did shoot that one. Sunset? Yeah. No. Oh, no, midday session. Uh, but no, anyway, so we had, Yeah, he was doing a big old regular foot backside air on a hip, uh, chair 14 mammoth. And I remember being there in that session, and Lucas just rolls right up heavy. Some people like Brett Butcher and Ike Helgeson had taken it deep, landed flat. It was heavy, you know, like hip sessions or make it or break it. And Gunnar was going up and just tail blocking the lip. <laughs> and I'm not going to go into what I did next, but I mean, that was, that was, uh, but you know, but I, you know, I did, I, I have some regrets about some stuff early on with Gunnar. Like when Gunnar did his minor threat, he, he called out his principal in the minor threat yeah. in print as being a bitch. Ooh. And I let that fly. And stuff like that. And I, I remember before that, right when I came back from the printer, being recalled. And, it, you know, there's a monthly timeout, two months or three on that stuff. And I'm like, God, how am I going to? I'm like, Gunnar, you got to call her. And you got to you gotta eat a lot of shit on this She's one. She's going to see it, right? Yeah. And I just, But Lucas and I, I remember sitting there with Lucas once when he was 16. Mammoth, I would drive him to the hill every day. Um, because he's from Killington. I didn't know him until he started traveling and going out west, but I remember turning to him. We had seen a friend of ours. Went to the hill just to sit on the deck and drink beers and not snowboard. I remember I gave this friend of ours shit, and Lucas like, man, you're pretty harsh on him. I go, listen, if I ever see you taking it for granted, you're going to get lit into it too. You know, being able to get paid to snow. I mean, you're, you have an opportunity to get paid to do what people pay to do. That's a rare privilege. Where? Me, writer. I get, you know, I lived a rich life of a poor writer, but I get paid, you know, a pittance to do what other people get paid to do. But it's like, um, 
Yeah, so anyway, so Lucas is amazing. And that's stuff. a great... That's a, yeah, let's I've never heard highlight that. that. I've never you heard get, that said. You get paid to do what people pay to do. That's great. Holy shit, I needed to hear that today. That yeah. was a fucking... That's a that's kind of a, that's a gem right That's there. a gem. Yeah. Like yeah, that, and that's... Uh, we all need to think about that sometimes, huh? Well, yeah, and it's... it's Yeah, it's it's a it's a privilege. So anyway, it's... Um, but either way, I... I love Lucas and seeing Lucas. My dad died around 10 years ago, and it was right around when Lucas, you know, had the sketching incident, and that was an interesting, I mean, and frankly, I mean, Lucas was in a tough spot before that. I mean, he already had his challenges here and there. Um, God, God bless Tanya. Mm-hmm. Seriously. So let's give Tanya. I haven't done the shotgun thing. <laughs> let's, let's hook Tanya up on that one. Give and, her a super air horn. Yeah, and I, a she couple deserves of, one. She's a sweetheart. But seeing the arc, I mean, how Lucas has, uh, he's a man now. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. And to see him with Winter and spend time with Winter. And I rode with him a couple of weeks ago, the day after our contest at Big Snow. We did the game of snow, and Lucas was a ref. And I remember the day after there was a public con- I'm wearing a shirt from the public contest. It's one of the bibs. And um, a Big Snow American Dream in New Jersey. And the Sunday was a little tough. We had a good time after the event. I was up pretty late. But I, I went to the resort. Well, one, obligations with the public event. But also the thing that really put some wind in the sails to get me there morning after was spending the day with Lucas. And Lucas and I just sat there and judged and rode and judged the public. And it was it was great. Yeah, he's a gem. And one thing, I called him to get that question. And he's the guy is laying fence posts, you know, and you can hear him. He's on a job site. And, you know, it's not like he's living a – him and Danya don't live a lavish life. And they care so much. Like, he's he's a big dog Patreon yeah. member of ours, which is, like, the, the highest yeah. – Subscribers out, he's, to Slush. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like these guys, he's out laying fence posts. You know, yeah. he really, really cares they, about the sport. He it's, loves it and stuff. I remember I was riding – so our art director is from um, Vermont. And so Lucas was doing – right after the bomb hole, he came out to Big Bear. And – uh we were riding the chairlift and our art directors, you know, from Vermont. And I'm just like, Oh God, here we are at bear mountain and its name's Kyle Sauter. And I'm like, Kyle is getting a chance to ride with not only Vermont snowboarding royalty, but big bear snowboarding royalty. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of both. Oh yeah. Zen diagram. And Lucas is talking to me and he's talking about his IRS stuff. He's like, oh, I got the tax man down here, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, you guys went over yeah. and all that. And then he's like, Starts talking about the money he's owed, and he goes, yeah, and Marco, Mark Frank Montoya, knows he owes me that money from the block party. <laughs> he always mentions that one in the contest. And I look at him, and I go, Lucas, it's 14 years ago. You got to let it go. Think about how much the IRS is letting it go. <laughs> like, you hate to break it to you. You are not seeing that money from Marco. <laughs> So uh, that's awesome. Another thing we got to—we've been talking about T Bird the whole time. He's the man, obviously. Air horn. Uh, and we did miss a lot of notable air horns. You're rifling off so many names. I got to do a <laughs> sidebar that like there is. Well, a just lot give of, one to Kidwell because okay. he always deserves it. And I don't know if he's gotten any any air horns yet. But yeah, actually, you, you know what? Fuck it. Before we get into this guest question, who's your Mount Rushmore for your top four? Buds asked. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so just so the people at home know, Mount Rushmore is a monument in the Midwest, and the presidents that are highlighted on Mount Rushmore are, are Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and Teddy Roosevelt. But uh, and knowing that it's a couple founding fathers, a mid-generation, and then a current guy when the thing went, I'm going to go with... Oh, he gets deep in the context. I never even thought about that. Yeah, I like it. 
Yeah. So I'm going to go with um, Terry Kidwell. Terry Kidwell has got to be, I mean, if ever, you know, you know, people say it in different things, like every snowboarder, you know, should, should pay a tax to Kidwell. He should, you know, every snowboard sold. I mean, the guy split the atom. I've seen the videos of the sessions on Mount Rose, the raw footage from Mike Chantry. I've got him. You think digital. we should do a, t- a uh, Kidwell tax? <laughs> National kid, Kidwell tax? That, that would be. I mean, whatever. I mean, the guy, <laughs> bad timing. Lack of ambition. He just loves snowboarding, but he never took a bad photo, like Brushy, you know. So I would say um, Terry Kidwell, Craig Kelly. Um, I mean, it's, it's so hard. You, you've really got to almost put a qualifier in there to say the Mount Rushmore, this, that, or the other thing, which we've talked about doing with Slush, calling it Mount Slushmore, so you might see that coming. Mount Slushmore. Yeah, you might see that coming down the pipeline here soon. We've been ideating around it. But Sean Palmer. Woo. And I got to say Terry because I do think – Terry, for for what Terry was able to do for his era, really, wholly remarkable. Craig, what, what about make, Craig? What, didn't make it, huh? He said Craig I did. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. What about Mount Rushmore of uh, snowboarder magazine photographers over the years? Who you got? Sidebar. Okay. Um, Trevor Graves. Bam. Sean Sullivan, the OG, not Sean Carrick Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Um. And then I, oh man, can we do five? No, we can't. We can't. We can't. Oh God, I can't wait. I to would. Say if you're gonna say there are or not. two people. I would. Yeah, well, I mean, it's got to go Oli and Stone because they have the most covers. But there are a handful. Espen Lestad, brother. I love Dodds. I love. I mean, Huggy. Um, Sedway. I saw some art of Aaron Sedway's two days ago at Jeremy Jones' house in Tahoe, and I was like, oh, Sedway does art. I love Sedway. Love Jimmy Clock. Scott Sullivan, him and I ran really thick for a couple of years. And Danny Zaplak kind of changed the photography game on some levels. Um, I think that's the main Wasn't he the one who went to the wrong resort once for Super Park? Yeah, we were at Keystone, <laughs> and I had to Shut get him as wrong resort. Oh, my God. I had to Wh- get where's him. The, where's the <laughs> no, Super no, Park? No, no, no. This is worse than that. This is worse than that. It was at Super Park at Keystone, and I had to get him his own room. He was there with his now wife, and he showed up late, and so obviously woke up late. We're all on the hill. I get a call. He's like, I, I'm in the parking lot, and nobody seems to know where the Super Park is. I go, what do you mean you're in the parking lot? How did first of all? How did you end up in the parking lot? Your whole, your condo is at the bottom of the hill, and he's like, I don't know, man. Everybody here at A Basin doesn't seem to know. <laughs> and I go, you left Keystone where you were staying and ended up at the resort down the street, and there's a gondola in front of your. Con- I'm like, I gotta go. I can't even. <laughs> you were so mad, you just had to get off the phone. <laughs> but Zaplak changed again. He's a brilliant photographer, and then you know people like Stan Evans, you know. Um, I'd like to get back to the Mount Rushmore where uh, Oli and I are right yeah, next I, to each I'd other. Yeah, I'd like to say that's, that's that's also, nice. Bud, do you, would you like to make an acceptance speech for making it on the <laughs> Snowboard Mag? The, uh, do you have a... Uh, I'd just like to thank Pat for uh, all the different paychecks from all the different <laughs> names over the years. And, uh, Dude, Stone's Grift. my passport. 
year after year after year. Dude, Stone's grift, too. You had the craziest grift, and I definitely looked the other what way. What does grift mean? Sorry, I don't know that Mean a scam. It's kind of like a scam and stuff. There were a couple. <laughs> and it was like, you would do all the Tech 9 marketing on yeah. Snowboarder's Dime. Like, True. And it was just like, I mean, seriously. I mean, look at the careers. Point, I mean, Lucas I'd- is one. I mean, Lucas and Marco, they were going to put, look at the riders, whether it's, you know, amazing snowboarders, but the Jonah Owens, the Dylan Thompsons, Dylan Thompson, phenomenal talent and stuff. But, <laughs> but you look at like Johnny Paxson and Jonah Owen and Dennison and all the, all these other tech nine, they were punching above their weight when it came to the trans world exposure meter because they rode for tech nine and you were the owner <laughs> of tech true. nine. Like all of a sudden it was good. Pretty much doubled their photo print intake and stuff. So that was, that was something we looked the other way, but also to help subsidize stone, we lowered the bar pretty good for the writing side. And we're like, stone, you want to get another bio? <laughs> you know, I was getting that writing. 25 cents a word. And stone would be sitting there like, and I moved to P I moved to peace mm-hmm. rate and peace rate just so people know. And when I started writing, it was like, you got paid by the word and stone started out at paid by the word, but then it moved on to, you know, peace rate where you're like, Oh, $250 for a non deck or something like that. Just to help forecast and, and control costs, fixed costs. Um, Stone would pretty much be like that kid doing the book report, like the 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 the. the. <laughs> Dude, he is full of it. Uh, I was a sick am a sick writer. You can actually see his his work uh, his yeah. work in every single video we do. He writes the YouTube and you know uh, say, podcast. I'm seventy one descriptions deep. Right, yeah. you know you know what they say. They say a photo is worth a thousand words. You know what else is worth a thousand words? A thousand dollar feature story. That's a word. True. And I would love writing those and shooting those. So thank you. Double threat. Double threat. <laughs> I was hired as like a media jihad way back in the day. I don't know if Talk was about. Yeah. Uh, that that would fly today. That was actually one of the first instances, uh, probably the first instance of cancel culture. Yeah. In snowboarding. But Should've it was self-censorship. Media jihad. So for people who don't know, Snowboarder Magazine in the late 90s, pre-internet, kind of like bloggy style but it was actually in print where we like would do I, I remember that was, regional I love news that. Yeah. You scroll through and look for the bo- the bold names yeah, regional news but the real roots of media jihad were when people would talk to us from like transworld or snowboard or whatever while we were doing ei and we'd be like yeah what do you guys got going on well this is what we're doing and then this is what the media jihad is up to and they'd be like media jihad what's the media jihad and this is why we were doing ei i'd be like oh the media jihad is the people who we speckled around the industry who are doing our bidding from the inside of the established industry establishment and then all of a sudden people would be like huh there's George Cavallo, there's Shemrose, there's Herb, there's all these people working in the industry, and they're like, these guys are psycho. They've got something media holy war going on, <laughs> media jihad, and it was that was ninety five, ninety six, and it wasn't until nine eleven. Now nine eleven was very interesting because the magazine that came out right after nine eleven one, it had a column in it which was about. 15 writers at its height. There were people like Ed Lee or Matt Barr from England and Europe writing about Europe and Canada. We had Matt Houghton. Matt Houghton was just a judge at the Olympics for skateboarding in Canada for, or in Tokyo. For He was an Olympic judge in skateboarding. You were part of the media jihad. John Cavan was part of the media jihad. Joel Muzzy was part of the media jihad. Annie Fast, first regular byline, later went on to be a editor of Transworld Snowboarding, first 
women's editor. Um, actually, it might have been the second one after Leah Jones, but uh, Annie Fast was part of the media. A lot of people, uh, you know, Travis Wood was part of the media, uh, tons, you know. And so Mark took the name that I had with EI and co-opted it to snowboarder for this thing. But then when 9-11 happened, two things happened. One, we had this recurring monthly column that was a gossip column it called regional gossip column called Media Jihad, where you could find out what was going on in the region. And then on top of that, we had a feature story about the contest in Sweden called The Battle, which was Jakob Soderquist's event up in Scandinavia. Jakob Soderquist, the best one-eyed snowboarder of all time. Just I've seen say him pop that. his eye out. Yep. Um, it was, so on the cover, we had an article about that shot by Espen, I believe, or Vincent Skoglund or something. Vincent Skoglund, amazing snowboarder staff photographer, Daniel Blum. Um, Stay on target. <laughs> <laughs> but it, on the cover, it said the Battle of the Two Towers or oh, the Battle really? of the Twin Towers. Yeah. On the cover of the mag when 9-11 happened. Wow. That really happened. Yes. And Foresight. Wow. That, yeah. Holy, holy shit. I got a quick Patreon question. Yeah, hit it. That's like some, some you know, biggie. Biggie, yeah, biggie, biggie small stuff. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to our Patreon members, and I want to feature a couple of our big dogs' names right now and say thank you. We got William Mayo, Alex Alert, and of course the Magoons. Thank you so much for being big dogs. Talked to Will Mayo the other day on the phone. Toe Pro lifts. Mm-hmm. So this is from Johan Melkowski, and. Uh, I, I want to almost rephrase his question, which is, how the hell does he remember all the riders' names at each event? But I want to take it a step further. How do you remember all these encyclopedia of people's names over the years? It's insane. I don't know. I can't. I mean, I I have had a bunch of concussions, you know. Um, I don't I don't know what it, what it, I mean, whatever. It's got to be something genetic. But I don't think I'm as good as people think and. Listen, it takes like two or three times. I mean, and the amount of times I'll be sitting there having a conversation with somebody and it'll be like a familial conversation and I have no idea who the person is and we'll hold the conversation. Like I was saying You'll fake earlier it. was, you know, I went to Whisper Ridge outside of Utah, uh, outside of Powder Mountain, and I had an hour-long conversation with somebody who's like, oh, I haven't seen you in like 15 years. Have an hour-long conversation came away. I'm like, I have no idea who that was. Pep Fuhas. Skier. Bro skier, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I used to uh, know a little bit in Mammoth and stuff uh, when he was running around with uh, Crisp and Chetler and stuff. So, But I, um, yeah, no, I don't know how I remember. But as far as people, I mean, whenever Snowbutter does an event like a Superpark or a launch or a Ms. Superpark, stuff like that, even more recently with the slush stuff, it's, um, but I mean, the slush stuff's more intimate. It's not 500 people. But I, you know, me and Mary... Uh, at times, Mark or T-Bird or somebody, Mary Walsh. You should give Mary a gunshot. She would love it. Has Mary ever gotten a gunshot or an air horn? I don't think she has. Ah, that's a good one. We'd like to get but her on the show one day. But we would sit there, and it, it was it was intentional. I would sit there and check every, you're coming into my house. I want to, you know, have an interaction and, you know, let you know what's up. And I also get to know people and stuff. So to meet was, everybody. Yeah, reception. but I'm not as good as people think, you know. There's a bit of a, you know, distortion, perception gap. I think not starting smoking weed till your 40s or eating it is yeah. uh, maybe something to do with it. More apropos is probably eating it, yes. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the liquid death. Death, death, death. Spinning wheel of death. 
we're over here chugging some liquid D. Or as Sage calls them, I think he calls them licky D's. Licky D's. Yeah. Liquid Death, the uh, beverage of champions. That's not their official tagline, but today it's going to be. Pat, you're having one right now. How's that thing going down? It's going um, good. Yeah. Hy- <laughs> hydrating. Yeah, perfect. Uh, yeah. Good. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's going good. <laughs> These things are awesome. Uh, you can pick them up at Whole Foods, Seven Eleven. Uh, they support the show. And, um, you know, you don't have to get blacked out when you drink these, which is always great. Um, you look like you're hammering a beer. We gave one to the UPS guy, and I told him, you know, you might not want to drive around with this in your cup holder. Somebody might report you thinking you're drinking and driving. He said, noted, I'll put it in a cup. So, uh, yeah, but he's getting hydrated, and he's chugging liquid death, and he, he's getting uh, packages out to you guys. Now, if you're interested in picking up some liquid death, head on over to liquiddeath.com slash bombhole. Get a couple free koozies. Again, liquiddeath.com slash bombhole. And, uh, yeah, start crushing some can, huh, buds? You know, before, uh, you know, I've had a hole in my yard for about maybe <laughs> a, maybe a year. <laughs> yes, right? about a year. With yeah. a red chair over it and uh, haven't fixed it. This morning, um, I gave two guys that were working on my street each a liquid death. And at first they thought it was beer. It was like 7.30 in the morning. And they were so stoked after they found out it was water, they filled the hole for me. The red chair debacle fixed. Wow, fixed yeah. by liquid death. Fixed by liquid death. Couple licky D's to the boys. Licky D's can solve all your problems. Yes, and they did. All right. Now, Pat, spin the wheel. Go ahead and give that thing a spin. Oh yeah, we gotta oh, hold it though. There's nothing on it. Well, it's huh. the camera. Can I can read it. Oh, it's one sided. Let's see where we're we gonna go. That's a weak spin. First of all, microwave shotgun, so, a brew. Uh, what we're going to do here, um, we're going to have to go outside the studio for this one. We're going uh, we're gonna to put a beer in the microwave, and then uh, Pat's going to shotgun it. Like you, you going to actually put time on the microwave? Yeah, yeah. of course. Are you going to blow up our office? Can you even do that? You're not supposed to put metal. And what are you? You're, you're, you're shitting me. <laughs> we're going to see what happens. We're going to see what happens. We're going to see what happens. Are you, wait, wait, how long? Uh, we'll maybe are you just doing signature. it for like two seconds, or how long are you going to put it this in? As for? long as you want. We can make a whole segment where we put it in, and maybe we walk around the office, and then we, uh, and then, we, and then uh, you can uh, take it out and shotgun it. Yeah. Let's so you're thinking it. about putting it in for like two minutes or three minutes? Yeah, yeah something yeah, three like that. or four minutes, three minutes. Well, wait, is, <laughs> one, it isn't it going to spark, and isn't it going to get too hot? You know, we do have insurance on this place. We do have insurance. So we have a good insurance policy. yesterday, maybe. So, and, you know, the books. Well, we're it's going to ruin your microwave. Yeah. Did uh, Jules read the policy? I don't yeah, know if I'm not sure. We'll we, we're up to, we're up to look yeah. at the fine print. Let's so. go give it a shot. What else is on there? Uh, that's actually the only thing we put on the spinning wheel. <laughs> it was rigged. <laughs> good luck shotgunning that hot beer. It's not even sparking. Yeah, it's, that's probably long enough. Here, you grab it. You want me to grab it? Oh, it's ice cold. No. Woo! Kid went to college. One year. Actually, full disclosure, I've done that before. <laughs> Actually, he, he does it every single time he parties. Pretty yeah. much. Well, let's keep this uh, party going and get into a fan favorite. You know what that is, buds? Name that video part. (laughs) 
All right, buds, you know what we're talking about right now? We're talking about the Icon Pass. Now, this Bad Larry, the old Icon Pass, is phenomenal because you can go to over 45 destinations worldwide and go snowboarding. Across five continents, nine countries, and 15 states in the U.S. alone. You know, when you're going to all these resorts, what you're doing is you're actually owning the stoke. You're not leasing it. You're able to go up there and own the stoke. Now, if you want to pick up one of these Icon Passes so you can get shacked all winter long, backlip some kink rails in the park, or uh, whack some pow turns, you know, things like that, head on over to IconPass.com and pick one of these passes up for how much, buds? 499 U.S. dollars. You know what? Prices like that, there's no need to counterfeit the stoke. Let's own the stoke. Let's do this. IconPass.com. Again, head on over to IconPass.com, pick up your season's pass, and have a great winter. Well, you know what? You got a lot to lose here, Pat, because you're kind of a, a snowboard encyclopedia, you know? Well, that, I should sandbag this one just so people stop uh, putting <laughs> that putting that pressure on me. You might just throw it away just to kind of... to <laughs> Yeah, I might put it in a tank. Yeah. <laughs> Confidence level zero through 10. I, what might, you got? I might be a flopper. Yeah, zero <laughs> through 10. Where are you at? Um, two. Two. Respectable. Here we go. I feel like I might know this. It's from a fucking dinosaur era of okay. Video. I know. I think I know it. All right. Is it all the what? name of the band? I don't know the name of the band. I know the video. Part. I think it is. It might be. Don't miss the train or whatever. I, I just don't miss. I just know the. Vi- I just know the movie. Don't make me sing. Um. I think it's in up in the ante. Up. Incorrect. Is it in Hard to Hungry and the Homeless? That's correct. That's where I was going. Okay, Hard is it Brian Agucci, Hard to Hungry and the Homeless? It's the first section. Oh, Jeff Rushy, Hard to Hungry and the Homeless? You kind of just won yourself. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> it, I, it's more like an intro. It's kind of like an intro section. But Brushy is... Yeah, there's a lot of people it. in it. It's But, yeah. Okay. So, anyway. Uh, I was going to say in Hard to Hungry and the Homeless. I had that, dude. That yeah. was my first. That would have been, or my second, maybe. So what you got here is uh, you got yourself a bomb hole cooler. It's uh, what? What's it got in there, buds? Oh, it's got merch from yeah, the bomb hole. There's a button on the top there. It's, it's you can get it, it up, at right? bombhole.com. Support the boys. <laughs> I have one of these. <laughs> you, how do you have one? How do you have one? Of I those? don't have a bomb hole one. Uh, I have an eco cool. Well, Not even an eco cool. It doesn't um, count unless it's a igloo? bomb hole one. I do have. Yeah, I got. Some, this is amazing. Socks, yeah, you got, you got a Stony Buds uh, air freshener in there? Let me swap these out right now. Oh, he's going, he's going. <laughs> Dude, Pat <laughs> goes on a trip and throws his socks out that's every not, day. That's not anymore. It's not very eco-friendly. Not every day. Every day. Dude, you have a pile well, of listen, white socks that listen, turn brown by the end um, of the trip. Fast. My, all right, so I have a weird thing with snowboard boots. So when we go to an event, I am standing on snow. Oftentimes, just happened you know, three weeks ago in New snow. Jersey, where I will be standing in my snowboard gear on a slope from eight in the morning to nine o'clock at night. That's not uncommon. Sunrise shoots, we'll do go sunrise to sunset. I'll be standing. So my boots, I mean, it's, they stew. And so, but it's like when I ride in a pair of socks, it, they kind of pass the point of no return uh, because of the boots, this and the other thing. And I ride what I ride. I don't like... I like what I like, and I'll ride it until it's unrideable. You like and cotton socks. And then there's 
from Walmart. Well, people, well, yeah, and I ride ankle socks or kids a lot of time while I'm snowboarding. And I've even ridden barefoot. I mean, there's the legend of what? Scotty Whitlake riding for a whole summer barefoot and stuff. At Hood? But, at Hood. But I, um, that sounds like a good way to get <coughs> trench foot. We're going to have to fact check yeah, that. Yeah, I want to fact check that. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, for a while I was definitely a bit indulgent with the socks where I was like, well, I walk around all day, I'll, you know, whatever. And the socks were 25, 50 cents a pair. I mean, it is something, uh, no, I definitely, where the socks will pass the point of no return is if I ride in them. I probably get like two or three days of riding in socks. And then it's just kind of like, there's not much I can do with them after that because I do ride such cheap socks. But now, I mean, as you'll see, I am wearing tactic socks right now that well, are very gonna, nice. No, you're going to get some bomb hole socks. Yeah, you're going to be able to ride a whole season. You're going to get a fresh pair of bomb hole socks, bomb hole socks, socks yeah. and those things are bulletproof. So if you can, find those, at, you can find those at bombhole.com, they're a little bit better than the, the tactic socks. Oh, you guys so, have a website. Yeah, yep. Um, oh, we're technically still smart. in, in name that video part, so we got to go to t- <laughs> part two here. Song number two. This is um, for the, the listener viewers at this point. You guys probably know the drill. If you don't, when Pat's episode comes out and you're listening to this, oh, I know that video part song. Comment on the photo of him on Instagram. That's where we pick our winner. You get a prize pack. You might even get some socks in this one. Who knows? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Nope. All right, well, I will tell you who the band is. The band is the Circle Jerks. And good, you know what? The, the song the, is the, When the Shit Hits the Fan. The and you could hear skateboarding in that. No, you can hear snowboarding, but the, it's uh, it's almost like the guy's ears were ringing that uh, we were just talking about. Because uh, anyway, I'm not going to give it away, but thank you guys for playing. Name that video. Uh, could I add? How about uh? How about you guys be down to give away subscriptions to Slush? Let's do it. Let's, let's throw let's it in it. the pack. That's easy. We're throwing it in the name that video part. Prize pack to the winner. Sure. Okay. There we go. Beautiful. That's it. Also, should we do? Should we do another one? Um, best comment on YouTube gets a slush subscription pack. That's whatever. Okay. It's easy. Right. I'll uh, I'll make you know. I'll ask somebody if we can make that happen. Ask yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let me talk to upper management, <laughs> uh, HR. Yeah. Okay. I think we can do it. Um, you know what I wanted to get into is your nickname, Pat B. I. Bridges. Mm. Uh, a, how'd you get your nickname? And then I kind of want to talk about my perspective of you being the all-seeing eye and trying to get noticed as, a, as an up-and-coming kid. Okay, goes back to EI. Um, again, it's that, uh, you know, roll up the sleeves, blue collar, do it, wear many hats. Um, I think it was in... It was in 1995 or 1996, one of the, whatever, some era of VI. Early on, one season, I picked up a camera and started shooting photos. And we were at Sunday River and shooting people like Roger Cameron and Jeremy Bay and doing the road trip. We used to always road trip. Um, Yeah, certainly Jeremy Bay, one of the most stylish riders I've ever seen in my life. Great friend, uh, you know, somebody I rode with a lot. But I I picked up a camera. And it was right around, had autofocus, was pretty simple. Um, and it was slide film at the time. And, uh, yeah, I just started shooting photos. We would pass the camera around. Chaka would be videoing so we could do 
uh, video grabs were big at the time. And then I would do still photos. And then when, when it came time to write captions, which I've always, you know, enjoyed writing captions where it's like something that's kind of like a bonus value added to a photo. And I know you either love them or you hate them. Probably more people hate them, but the people who love them, love them. And, uh, I wrote this caption for the very first photo that I ever had printed in EI. And it was like, I don't consider myself a professional photographer like Gary land because I ride too much and know too much about the sport, but I do believe I have the eye. And Gary's a great friend. I mean, just last night I wrote another, I wrote an intro to his book that he has coming out, East Street Archives. He's an amazing photographer, lived in Killington with him, shot with him every day. He came, shot at the Snowdome a couple of weeks ago. People who don't know, Gary's directed Super Bowl commercials, amazing photographer, and went on beyond snowboarding. Uh, was Alan Iverson's personal photographer, did a book on Alan Iverson. But anyway, so Gary's doing a book on his time in Killington and shooting photos and snowboarding. But anyway, so I wrote that caption. I don't believe I'm, uh, you know, a professional photographer like Gary Lamb because I know too much about the sport and ride too much, but I believe I have the eye. And then Mark Sullivan grabbed the ball and ran with it. So every single time I had a photo run or every byline was Pat, the eye bridges, lowercase e, capital Y, lowercase e, carried over into snowboarder. But what's really funny is how many people come up to me and to this day and are like, I mean, I mean, I'm whatever. There's no turning back now. But they think I'm a photographer. So much to the point that this morning I got another email. It's down to the third round of judging for the Red Bull Illum photo contest. <laughs> I am a judge of the Red Bull Illum. I'm not a photographer. <laughs> but so, because of the nickname, The Eye, people, and people are like, hey, man, I love it. Like, people will walk up to me and be like, hey, I grew up putting your photos on my wall. And I'm like, well, you weren't even alive when we did EI. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, literally only shot photos for like two months in 1996, you know? And I was, <laughs> I, didn't, I never knew you shot photos. <laughs> well, I also was one of the first people you saw with a digital pocket elf at all times. Yeah. And I would shoot like paparazzi stuff, but I never took it serious, never you know, went into post on the photos, a lot, a lot of red eyes, um, but whatever, you know, and I do have thousands of photos from 2002 to 2007. But then I was like, everybody started pulling out the phones, everybody had photos. And I started to be like, well, if I don't, I don't need to take a photo of this because I look around and there's four other people taking photos of anything that's memorable. I'll see it. And so I stopped. But, um, to this day, people still think I'm a more a photographer than a writer, which is weird because I'm, it's a big misconception. You know, That's it's, awesome. a, but the Red Bull loom thing blows my mind. I don't, I dare I say, I think people at Red Bull probably thought I was a photographer. So I, my, my uh, misconception about the eye. You blew it, Stone. This was your year to do the loom. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah you I would have been in the tank for you. Damn. <laughs> so going from my perspective of coming up, I was always told that you were the eye because you kind of see everything, you know, like maybe you've, you go to super park and the eye is going to see what happens. Right. That, and I don't know if that's a thing, but from, you know, you know, it's a, a cool perspective is like, you know, for, for many people, my age and you know, plus minus a, even probably a decade of, of my career, you, you would go to super park, you know, specifically and be like, Oh shit, you know, Br bridges is here. Like, I, I hope, I hope he notices me. I hope the eye, I hope the eye sees me, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, it's kind of a funny, funny deal. Cause you had that kind of aura about you or you're kind of intimidating. You're like, 
fucking people are turning into the hip. You're tapping them out like, you're fucking done. And you're like, oh, God, I hope I hope Pat likes me and I can get in the mags, you know? Well, <laughs> there's a couple of things that, well, the other thing, back to the eye nickname. I mean, I'm sure some people have said, you know, because I have a lazy eye, that I'm probably called the eye because I have a lazy eye, which is where I always try and work on my blocking. Um, but, yeah, I mean... One, with Superbark and stuff, I mean, I had heard from other people who'd go to other magazines' events and be like, yeah, there's nobody from the staff on the hill till like, 1 or 2 in the afternoon. We'd be like, hey, let's get up there early before it's hectic and shoot something. And, you know, the editors or whoever would be like, no, we're not going to get there till late. We're going to have fun partying tonight and stuff. And I was like, well, you know, that just wasn't my thing. And, I mean, to that end, it was like, yeah, I have plenty of morning afters. But, I mean, I haven't drank on snow since 2001. I mean, I remember one day at the U.S. Open with Forrest, I did drink while Forrest Bailey and I were lapping during the pipe finals. Somebody who I love snowboarding with and fortunate for years that I got to ride with him like 50 days a year. But um, that's one time because I, I was – pretty hungover when I blew my knee in 1999 in the big era at the U.S. Open. So I was like, I, you know, once I got my knee fixed, I was like, I'm not going to take it for granted. But there's a lot of morning afters. But anyway, so with Super Park, talk about a tangent, but with Super Park, I just wanted to be present. It was like, in one, you know, some of my staff would, you probably had plenty of beers at Super Park. I know Bird and everybody, I mean, Bird passed out under the chairlift at mid <laughs> Super Park one year for a couple hours. Um but yeah, I was always like, listen, this is my house. I gotta, I gotta be present. I gotta be, you know, there's too much going on, too much at stake. The riders are bringing, bringing it. I might as well bring it. But to your point about riders wanting to get noticed by quote unquote, the eye, there's also a lot of riders who think quite the opposite. They want to come to super park. They feel obligated to come to super park, but they also come to super park with the intention of not getting noticed by the eye. You know, I remember Billy Mackey's, you know, I heard a quote from Billy Mackey, love Billy, saw him last year, I dig the guy. And uh, he'd be like, yeah, I see Pat go left and I go right. I, <laughs> I don't have, a, I don't have any, any need to have that guy judging whatever I'm doing on the <laughs> hill. And I've been in situations, whether it's sitting with Pat or Hardingham or Dustin, and we've been like eyeing up a quarter pipe one year at Mammoth, and it was sessions going on someplace else. I think the lunatic was happening at this particular one because Rory Silva, the skier, had an episode with T-Bird where Rory's like, hitting the jump and the ski patrol is like, you can't hit the jump with two beers because the guy didn't have poles. He just had a beer in each hand and it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. Hands one beer to the ski patrol and drops. But I, um, I remember seeing people roll up and all right, now's the time. Nobody's here. We're going to hit the quarter pipe and then look uphill and see the three of us, me, Pat and Hardingham or Dustin and skate right back out. But to that end, I mean, Super Park also is very egalitarian. It's very democratic in that, like, it's not, um, one, it's, I like to say it's like open format and you can show up for a session. You can show up at one, you can show up at nine, whatever you do. You can hit this, that, or the other thing. If you have your own filmer, you can be on your own trip, like a Torstein or somebody like that. Or you can join the session, you know. Um, but because it's free form, People have an opportunity, and it's very democratic. You know, people have an opportunity to shine, whereas that might not be their setup, that might not be their spot, but where they haven't found shine elsewhere, they're able to stand out. And even geographically, you know, you see somebody like Fridge pop up off the radar. I mean, I remember Haldor Helgeson 
showing up. Ike had made his name with Rome snowboards and Ike Helgeson had been in some of the Rome videos. But I remember we did a Gatorade pond skim all red at Mammoth one year. We put food coloring, pool food coloring into the water and did a red pond skim and Heldor Helgeson's there and he totally ate it, you know, and you're getting pelted gauntlet style with snowballs. And I remember everybody being like, hey, who's the guy who scorped in the middle of the red, you know, Riptide Rush pond skim or whatever. And I was like, well, you'll know he's going to be the rookie of the year this year. That is Haldor Helgus. And that's where, like, people are able to, you know, if, you, if, if you're feeling it that day, you could be Travis Rice or you could be, you know, Seth Hill. And we're going to give you that due, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, um, you could be a gremlin. You could be a man boy. It, it doesn't matter. You could be part of the dust box. You could be part of Lick the Cat. We're going to, and it's the Ender Center. And that's the communal vibe that really started to shift Super Park because there's a big misnomer with Super Park. People think that it's all, you know, um, stunt boarding. And yeah, there's some stunt boarding. I mean, the person sitting across from me right now wants to shoot the big stuff. And I've had team managers come up like, you need the separator features. You need this, that, and the other thing. But coming out of Lake Louise, where everything was all big, the first year of Lake Louise, I realized riders stopped wanting to come because there wasn't anything to, to warm up on. And at the same time, they're like, the hot kid is like, hey, because this isn't a contest that's invite only, it's just whenever, and the photographers, the filmers, the team managers, everybody's there. People are kind of like punching above their weight class at times, you know? And granted, the features got big enough to the point where if you weren't capable of hitting them, you just had a visceral notion like, okay, this is above my pay grade. You know, it wasn't a suicide contest, so to speak. But um, there's like the last year at Mammoth, there was probably mile of transition yes everything was all trannied out some of the years at bachelor i mean there's plenty of lappable features you know Mm -hmm. and the builders themselves joke like hey this is for you know the significant others to hit you know not for the pros themselves you know and it's like um that's a bit of a misnomer but the cultural aspect where it's the ender sender where it's like you spend a year, like you, spend a majority of your winter filming alongside five riders. That's your bubble. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you compete. You're Brock Crouch or you're Mark McMorris. You spend a year riding with the contest kids. You know, or if you're, particularly this year, you're in, you're in Canada in lockdown. You're not really riding with Americans. You're in America in lockdown. You're in Scandinavia in lockdown. What it was was a, a siren's call for all riders to come together and celebrate the end of a good season. And that was, you know, whether it's the riots in downtown Bend at night, every night, you know, ending up at the east side or whatever the bar was and, and like everybody, or even Breck, you know, ending up at Mari's and then Cecilia's and stuff. I mean, it, it, there's multifacets, but it's also an opportunity for team managers, filmers and writers to find themselves watching somebody's session that they've never seen snowboard mm-hmm. in person before. Well, you're riding the chairlift, sitting next to somebody you never met before. If you're a team manager, be like, well, my team riders hitting that with that guy and that guy just sent me a resume maybe and i hate to make it a contest like that but it is from a practical sense like maybe i should have called that guy back or something like that and then you get to the hip at mammoth that one you know the big hip you know with the yuki cover and stuff and show yuki kodono unsung i maybe give him a shotgun maybe not i mean um he went huge and that was a crazy one i mean toby miller guineaed that people don't realize you look at toby miller you think he's this pipe jock he guineaed the biggest hip ever built and it had a 20 foot gap before he even got to the landing mm-hmm. and that was a 22 foot tall takeoff if not 26 feet tall and it's like dude you, you know, know you that- got you got but you were there 
you were there, obviously, but you also have Pat Moore and Scott Stevens. And Scott Stevens is Instagram Live going, now we're talking. You know, mm-hmm. and that's like the the peanut gallery. And that is something that's always happened at Super Park, too, which is why somebody can really emerge from it for a couple of reasons. One, there's something that you're breaking the fourth wall. When you are there in person as a pro snowboarder, you're like, well, I don't even want to hit that thing. And I've never seen that ride a ride before. And that guy just did the dopest thing ever. What's his name? And you find it out really quick. And the, there's, there's no way that you're not getting coverage when you do something sick. Mm-hmm. And there's 10 videographers and filmers. But the Pinakel, you look at the old photos of 50 tripods set up on a hillside. Yeah, Jason, Travis Mas- Rice. Dan and, Breezy. Yeah, Breezy. Dan Breezy gapping over. It's called the Lights Out Tree Island at Super Park. Or Travis, to go back to Travis. Travis is very gracious in saying that Super Park launched his career, which that's his truth. But I think Travis Rice would have been Travis Rice, regardless of Super Park. And he's got his origin story where he poached, which isn't true. He was at the World Quarters, did a double backflip to fakie. Mark and I were taking a leak in the woods, didn't watch it. So we redid the finals and he got screwed. And Guy Deschamps ended up winning, another amazing rider. But I was like, okay, he's got to come to Super Park to make up for the fact that he should be World Quarter Pipe champion today. Well, let's a couple things there too. The the freaking the session when the year that I think it was the year you guys had the hit, but there was an upper jump uh, off a of chair six that I want to say T Flan guineaed, and he he did a back ten over early. It looked like a back three basically. Do you know the jump off to the right that was really poppy? Fridge was hitting it. Um, You're in Haldor was hitting it. Mammoth. Um, that one monster kicker, that, the biggest airtime jump of all that, time. That was that was my that was the heaviest jump session I've ever watched in my life. I will say absolutely. Like, and and you know you look at Matt Johnson. People don't talk about how big the jumps were that Matt yeah. would hit. And you know, obviously there's been big. I mean, you look at Pyramid Chads, these huge jumps. You look at the jump sweet and hit. I think at Alpen Tall for the absence film. There's big jumps, possibly bigger jumps. Now what that jump had. And this is, this is a different way of looking at size. Um, that jump definitely had distance, and it definitely had pop, and it was steep. It had landing for days. But what that jump had was hang time. Mm-hmm. And at Super Park, we would have this mindset when it came to stuff like TJ was building like that, that would, where it was like, why, um, why send them around the world when you can send them to the moon? Which, when you have a poppy jump like that, our mindset was mortar. Um, that jump was a three and a half second of hang time. So let's do the count. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, half. That's a significant amount of time. Um, and some people a little bit more, some people a little bit less, but that's the sweet spot. Now what poppy jumps do is they unweight you. Um, so you're able to get better style and you're able to put more English on it because you're not burdened by having a skimmer or, um, the arc being such that you don't get to weight. The other thing it does is you displace energy over height as opposed to displacing inertia, momentum over distance. You know, when you're displacing momentum over height, your sweet spot, actually it's easier to hone in on the sweet spot because you'll go a little shorter, a little lower, but you'll still go like the, the, the algebra of it is such that you'll, you're, you're less apt to knuckle. You're less apt to overshoot because even though, you know, a couple miles per hour difference is just going to result in um, five feet of height, 
in maybe five feet of distance, whereas a couple miles per hour on a skimmer, low angle takeoff, is going to result in a 10-yard differentiation. Um, whatever. That's why that session was so key, and you're seeing stuff. So Craig Ballou, or Craig Willis, Torstein's filmer, Craig. Yes, yeah. Oh, he did Nitro a Lonnie. Craig. He did a Lonnie on that thing. He did a double lawn dart. Yeah. You know, didn't he go I know he did, front, he did, open, I know he did tuck, one he, open. I think you're right, yeah. The filmer did it. Yeah, he's a he ripping, turned into he's a, a filmer. He's Colorado he's low. Yeah, he's, he's not just. A but filmer. he's a perfect example of somebody who's given a platform at Super Park, and then in turn, riders like Aldo or Fridge or people like that. Sage was beating that thing down too. Sage was beating. I mean, Timmy Sullivan hit it, and I remember turning to Timmy Sullivan and being like, "Yeah, Timmy, you had a good run. Let's sit down. <laughs> <laughs> You've already hit it. I've seen you do that to a lot of people. <laughs> well, I have, and maybe I should have done it more or less, but." Um, but yeah, Craig Willis, I'm sorry about butchering your name, but Craig's amazing, stylish rider, had the great Gimbal God clips from that year and stuff, mm -hmm. the forward and aft uh, follows and in the leads. But he's a perfect example of somebody who's who shows up at Super Park, and he's almost like, I used to call them spring ponies. Mm -hmm. There's riders who who you wouldn't see, and they wouldn't really make a mark till they came to Super Park, and then all of a sudden you're like, Hardingham was almost like the prototype of that. Where, And then there's riders like Pat, Dustin Harding. I mean, Pat was a little bit of an anomaly because Pat Moore once at Super Park the first year, second year at Keystone. Amazing. Second year at Every Hill was the best. I remember I brought Pat up before the event started like a day or two before and he's looking at everything. Then we're having a bread bowl in the Keystone Village and Pat Moore turns to me, stone faced, and he goes, so this is what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to go from feature to feature and photographer to photographer and I'm going to get the best shot on every single thing that's built up there. That is what I expect of myself. Holy <laughs> shit. Wow. How old was he? Um, Dude, he would show he, up and destroy uh, every had, year. He had just gotten the plaid, uh, his first pro model, the plaid top sheet. like The, the forum one? Yeah, like the flogging mall. Yeah, right when he, right when he bought a house here, or his second house, actually. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah, but anyways, and yeah. that was when we started going like, man, you are a jock. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, Pad had already... Um, I mean, Pat was sober at the time. Pat used to drink when he was really young, and then he 18 stopped. 18 to 21, and then he, he stopped. And then he started, yeah. So Pat was the adult in our relationship a lot of times, and that was when <laughs> I would ride with Pat a lot. And I remember one time I was at the 100K, and I had a morning after, you know, maybe still drunk, a little bit of hungover, and I was kind of blowing it. I didn't get to ride with him a lot that year. And it was a turning point for me where I'm like, you know, if I'm going to get to ride with Pat, I'm going to. I'm going to show up. I'm not going to handicap myself by going out late the night before. 100K is a hard one not to, though. Mm -hmm. But uh, what, for people that don't know, the 100K is the Zoomies event in Colorado where they bring in all the pro snowboarders, pro Kelly Slater surfers, and oh, everybody yeah. who's got a signature model shoe or ever had a signature model shoe in skateboarding is creeping around there and stuff. And you see people like Ardo Sari passing out in a snowbank, altitude, mm -hmm. wreaking havoc on everybody. Mm -hmm. And then you walk outside and you'll see like, cost in a rentals or somebody going hey should we hike up there at two in the morning they just finished grooming the slope you're like what and then you hear it on you know you listen to the nine club and they'll be like yeah that's when he blew his knee at 100k yeah <laughs> it's like yeah it was it was the best and the worst for pro skaters uh, i'm but. curious on the super park before we pivot off a of super park what was the what was the heaviest or maybe your favorite session of all the sessions that you've ever watched well you brought it up i mean the most memorable moments in the heaviest sessions are, I mean, the most memorable moment is the, you know, second year bachelor 
sunrise shoots, sunrise shoots are crazy. Um, yeah. Um, sunrise shoots are crazy. And uh, like everybody, ideally you hear a lot about sunset shoots. Uh, sunrise shoots are a pretty rare thing. I mean, uh, sunset, golden hour, it's when the sun's about to, to dip below the horizon. So what it does is it, it diffu- it's a natural diffuser of the light where all of a sudden turns everything gr- golden. It's called golden hour, magic hour, whatever. So that's usually how you end a day at an event um, or on a team photo shoot, film shoot, whatever. Sunrise shoots are a whole different beast altogether. So generally speaking, in a sunset shoot, and Stone, you can elaborate on all this. <clears throat> If you'd like, I mean, you're the photographer, but um, this the sunset shoots always end when the light gets too hard for the riders to ride, but in the filmers to film because of the aperture with the films. But the riders themselves can't can't see, but the filmers or the photographers are always like, "Well, the light's just getting good," and whether you have flashes or not, this, that, or that thing. So that's the dynamic of a sunset shoot. And you've seen. Hundreds, if not thousands, of covers shot at dusk because of it. Sunrise, on the other hand, and it's unique at Bachelor. We were doing Superpark at that time at a part of Batch, Mount Bachelor in Oregon called Sunrise. Therefore, it's, it's golden at sun just because of the way the aspect of the slopes fall in that region, whether it's south-facing or not. Generally speaking, um, sunrise is the exact opposite, whereas the photos at sunset get better as you get later the best photos are the earliest photos because it gradually gets a little worse, 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 and it's a hell to coordinate. So we were able to get like the Gremlins and Hans and Nils Minnick and Seth Hill and a bunch of Nils Arvidsson, a bunch of riders to show up. Uh, Scotty Vine, can't forget Scotty Vine. You know, he did a big one foot front three, but just getting everybody to rally. Some riders slept in the parking lot. There's the logistical challenges. Those, from a satisfaction standpoint, those are the most satisfying. So that first one sunrise shoot in which they're hell, they are hell. You're like, you're not in the fucking parking lot at four 30 in the morning. You ain't getting in. So you got five filmers, five photographers, you got 20 riders. It's just logistically, it's a challenge. And it's, if you're five minutes late, you've lost five minutes of the better photos that you're never going to get. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be strapped in and we got to have a snow cat the builders are up there before even the riders because they got to within 15 minutes because it's frozen. They got to retail the landing. So it's got some give. So to that end, those two shoots at Mammoth also where we had the big booter, which was only open for sessioning pretty much from like eight to nine in the morning, you know, before the general population showed up. Those are also probably the most progressive jump sessions of the last decade, if not, modern times and snowboarding since Y2K who knows where they stand, but anybody who was there and anybody who witnessed them steps back and goes, yeah, shit just went down and the ante just keeps getting up and you feed off the energy of the rider before mm-hmm. you and stuff. And it's uh, and there's a satisfaction in knowing not only did we get shots before nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, we got the best shot of the whole five days before nine o'clock in the morning. So it's kind of like, all right, we did our job, so it's big exhale at the same time. Those are the most memorable mm-hmm. sessions at Super Park. But, I mean, something you talked about earlier was the tapping out thing, where it's like there's a legend of me tapping people out at Super Park. People would be scared of you, running like, scared around that park. If you're looking loose, you're, you're getting tapped out. Yeah. If you're looking loose, Only you're one person 
two people have ever been tapped out. Only I'm two? I'm not going to say no. I don't know if I believe that. I don't believe that Officially one. Officially tapped This out. is where your memory's getting... No, 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 no. Because I learned pretty early on... There's you would let him back in? There's carrot in the stick. One of the people who actually officially got tapped out got let back in. And any other person, I don't know what happened to him. I mean, the guy is actually in jail now in New Hampshire or something. Yeah, no, it's a bit of hyperbole. I mean, because I started figuring out there's a carrot in the stick situation. Rather than going for the tap out with the stick, more often than not, I would do the carrot situation where it's like, hey, you're not going to get allowed on the snowmobile for this session till you start stepping it up. You know, people like Bogart would be like having to hike and uh, you're looking at people hitting the sled lap and you're like, all right, I want to get on that sled lap. So it was kind of an incentive thing. So I evolved how I did it. But at the same time, other people deputized themselves through the lore of the tap, tap, tap. I might have tapped a couple people out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, Pat Moore, he, Pat Moore was in Whistler. And it's uh, he met Andrew Jeeves. And he's like, oh, you're Andrew Jeeves. Nice to meet you. And Jeeves turns to him and goes, yeah, we met before. And Pat's like, oh, really? Where? He's like, you tapped me out at Super Bowl. <laughs> and I'm like, and he did it to Cody Rosenthal on Hip Ones too. And I'm just like, Pat, you know you're not really sanctioned you're not deputized to be tapping people <laughs> other people dusting and other people but also i think there's a self-regulation that happens and and there's stuff that we're strict about and it's not about you know one of the guys who got tapped um we won't get into it but it's you know he he did a slash on a hip landing well one that's a big no-no you got to hold the line well there's that and riding up a landing and doing a slash it's got its time and its place it's time and its place isn't when somebody's trying to go 30 feet above a yeah lift. That's not the time and place to put a hole in the landing or create a kink in a landing or stuff like that. The tail block the lab, Lucas McGinn. <clears throat> exactly. And this guy, it wasn't so much that he did it, which was a verboten, but why the guy got tapped out is he did it in the middle of a session, one of those, you know, barbecue sessions where you got 500 people watching what's going down and there's every chair under a quad. It's full of riders. And once somebody sees that they can do something without – you know, as much consequence, and it looks fun. It is fun. We're snowboarders. We love slashing. But you can slash all day long. You just can't do it at Superbark. And it was more about, like, you know, you, I just don't want people to do something artificial to something that is artificial. They, I just don't want somebody to do something that's going to add to a hazard. You know, there's inherent risk in everything we do. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Another thing that's cool about Superpark is when you think about – you know, a lot of people are, are big fish, small pond. You know, you, you might be feeling like you're, uh, you're hot shit in your local area and you, you're, you're kind of killing it. But when you show up at Super Park, you really, you really know where you stand. You're like, holy shit, these people. Like, and, and there's something to be said, too. You know, I think there's, there's room for all different types of snowboarding. Uh, and, you know, it does seem like it's been leaning towards more relatable snowboarding, which is is totally fucking great in a lot of respects. But I do thoroughly believe that we need that big dog shit that like, you know, there still needs to be like an, a fucking platform for big dogs to show up and eat. You know, it can't all be relatable snowboarding, you know? Well, I mean, there, everything has its place, you know, but I mean, I had a conversation with somebody this year and they're like, Hey, if you're having trouble finding photos, then why aren't you running like cover photos of certain people? Why aren't you running stuff that's more relatable on the cover? And I'm like, well, we don't have a lot of carrots. You know, and I hate to say carrots. What we don't have is we don't have a lot of those elevated accomplishments. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you got an Olympic medal. You got a, 
You got an X Games medal. You got a U.S. Open Championship. Maybe, maybe in the future you do. You know, nobody is sitting there. You know, I like to think nobody is sitting there saying, "Hey, that's uh, those likes are make it or break it for me for my career." Ooh, I got you know, putting on a resume. I got ten thousand likes on this post. You know, I mean, maybe. You know, I mean, I know people are getting were getting incentive for. It. I'm not sure if they still are, but you know, I turn to this person. I go, listen. You know, for the people who are doing something that that is really progressive, that is really kind of superlative, something that's different than than just something anybody can do, where are you going to put that? You got to reserve the cover for stuff that that's going to stoke people out and and inspire them to be their best self, as opposed to something that's like party boarding or something that's like low impact. You know, I mean, we could get into the low impact thing, but it's like. Yeah, covers, interviews, openers, enders. There's got to be a standard, and there's got to be a gatekeeper, and there's got to be a barrier of entry. And I don't necessarily think I want to be that gatekeeper. I want to provide the tools for the next generation of gatekeepers, be it the, you know, the Teds or the Stans or the, you know, uh, the Maxes and, and so on and so forth. So it's like, yeah, but I, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, the relatable stuff. I mean, a lot of people say – we are distancing ourselves from the greater snowboarding community by having those standards and stuff, but it's not an either or proposition, you know, look no. at what happened with, you know, look at what happened with natural selection tour in Jackson hole last year. I mean, let's be real. Not a lot of that snowboarding is relatable, but is it inspirational? Yes. You know, um, certainly not the Alaska stuff. I mean, I, you and I grew all three of us growing up on the East Coast. I mean, that was just, the, you know, you look for the time to go to the bathroom. It's like Rocket Reeves in a standard film. You're like, all right, I'll be back. I got to run, <laughs> take a leak. <laughs> but, you know, and I love Rocket. Super nice guy. And now I have a different appreciation for it. But at that time, what am I going to be doing? Am I going to be going down Devil's Fiddle at Killington going, all right, this is cool. This Devil's is Odin's Fiddle. Ladder. You know, no. <laughs> That's couple awesome. icy, a couple icy moguls yeah, aren't comparing big, to an big old mogul. <laughs> Maybe I'll be Andy Hetzel at the Swatch Worlds, but I'm not going to be Yohan Olofsson in Alaska. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's unfortunate, and it changes. And I think a lot of the culture is changing, particularly now that you know people are socially distant. They're doing their my own two feet thing with you know split boarding and stuff like that, and. You know, but I mean, you know, I always say, I mean, I, I don't get the no friends on a pow day, but I definitely get the no friends on a split board day. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Bud's avid split board over here. Love it. He's, he's, he's yeah, a, very avid. He's got, <laughs> he's got out of the streets. He's now, now eats granola and fucking torrents all day long. True, true story. We, well, we, we've been talking a lot about this person and, uh, let me just switch over to a guest question from Pat Moore. Here we go. Hey, Pat. It's Pat. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the World Quarter Pipe Championships. Uh, first of all, what was it like to deal with my mom, who is the marketing director at Waterville Valley Resort, when the event was hosted at Waterville? I also want to just know what the event was all about, how it got started, and what happened there. Best of luck. Best of luck. Let's give Deb an air horn. It's <laughs> a good air horn. Yeah, that's amazing. And just so you guys know, so I first met Pat when he was like eight years old. And I've told this story before. I relayed this story at his wedding. I was one of his great speech. His wedding. Yes, you were there. Um, 
Yeah, so I would go to Waterville. But um, all right, so I serendipitous. I just wrote about this last night for a book. Um, Mark Sullivan actually, you know, was the Germany idea of the World Quarter Pipe Championships. Was Mark Sullivan working at Snowboarder Magazine in 1998? He. Uh, he wanted to do something called the East Coast Snowboarding Championships. We went to our buddy Matt Gormley. I give Matt Gormley an air horn. He uh, I know definitely Gormley. huge oh, yeah. hero of East Coast snowboarding. Legend. Yeah. Um, really did a lot to drive the culture for a lot of people. I mean, you see him in the DNA of crab grab everything. So Gormley's like down. You know, let's just have a session right before the U.S. Open uh, at Waterville Valley, and let's just. He worked with upper management as part of Booth Creek Resorts at the time, and, and made it happen. And it was 1998. People like Kyle Clancy and Jeremy Bay, uh, Todd Schlosser was there. Uh, a lot of people showed up, and uh, yeah, it was just a grassroots quarter pipe session. wasn't very uh, rowdy that first year. The first couple of years wasn't too rowdy, but it gradually got a bit more reckless and lawless. But by year two, I turned to market. I'm like, you know what, if we're going to do this again, let's just screw it. Let's just, let's, let's go for the, go for the gusto and let's just call it the world quarter pipe championships. So we basically just squatted on the name. Now it's been trademarked and so on. But those early years was really like a no paper trail type of mentality. And it was like me and primarily Mark and then me. And then, uh, Matt Barber was involved. Gormley was involved. Later, Mike Batera was involved, who's a good friend, does Effective Edge. Um, but Pat's mom was the marketing director of Waterville Valley. I wouldn't deal with Deb a lot. I wouldn't deal with Deb that much till a couple of years later. And I got Joel Muzzy was working there for a couple of those years, too, uh, who later went on to work for me and then worked for Transworld. Amazing writer. But Joel Muzzy... Um, worked with Deb or Mike Patera worked with Deb. So, but we would hold it midweek. So all of upper management at Waterville Valley would take the day off and Deb would volunteer to be the only person who would be there from upper management at Waterville. She was the marketing director and the quarter pipe was like the back of the quarter pipe faced the marketing and the administration offices. So they had no idea what was going on beyond this, you know, 60 foot wide behemoth up on the hill. And it was, it was crazy, and it was like, we, couldn't do it today. You know, I mean, it's funny. We did the World Quarter Pipe Championships as part of Slush this year at Squaw Valley, California. Any amount of people, even responsible people, even people who have some responsibility as a part of Slush with the event are like, what's up with the gauntlet? And I'm like, there's no gauntlet. You know, like, <laughs> if we want this to sustain, and, I mean, first of all, we got COVID to deal with. We got all these other things to do. I mean, you can't be... You know, you wouldn't want to get, you know, COVID germs spit in your face because somebody's trying to spew beer on you or stuff like that. And we, you know, I would always say you can only keep it real so long before you end up dead, pregnant, or in jail, you know? And it's like, we had a good run with the World Quarters and in and, and its incarnation at that point. And it's, it was an anti-contest. Like, you didn't have to sign up. You didn't have to pay an entry fee. You just hiked up, let her rip. And it was very libertarian. It was awesome. I mean, and the people who went, you know, Natasha Zurich, Annie Boulanger, and Fleur Markser, DCP, he came with Megan one year, uh, Guy Deschan won it, I mean, Daniel Sapa, random Euro guy, obviously, Ross Powers, Danny Cass, J.J. Thomas, uh, Trish Burns would go, um, you know, Bodie, He's Bodie a Merrill is He's a, a world quarter pipe champ. Wow. So Kevin know, Casilla. Kevin Casilla is Scotty Lego is a world quarter pipe champion. I mean, Travis Rice would go. We talked about Travis Rice before. You know, the second time Travis went to the world quarters was in Boston. 
he got tapped out for not on his first air for not grabbing. Now that the world quarters we would tap people <laughs> out, but um, yeah. So the world that's it, Pat. Yeah, the world quarters. Can I tell you something about Pat? Yeah, it's here. You'd be surprised how many people get me and Pat Moore confused. Oh yeah, I've heard this. <laughs> so much so that Pat Moore gets asked to get invited to Superbart <laughs> over DM all the time. I was at. Uh, a Volcom uh, rep thing with like five or six reps uh, stores. Like it was like a hundred people, five or six stores. I gave everybody who was in the snowboarder free press, all of our retail partners up and Tahoe, a bottle of high West whiskey. And afterwards I step off and this guy walks up to me and goes, Hey man, stoked to meet you. I got to tell you your signature model boots changed my snowboarding life. <laughs> and I go, Oh, okay. That's cool. And I wait a second. I go, what? <laughs> And he goes, your, your signature model. I go, you think I'm Pat Moore? He's right there. He's 10 <laughs> feet away from me. Another time we were at Mount Hood and I was going to buy a lift ticket because everybody's got to buy lift tickets. And I went up to the counter and I'm like, hey, do you guys um, do you guys give military discounts? And the person behind the counter goes, yeah. Are you in the military? I go, well, I can't really say. There are certain parts of the government and the military that you can't really acknowledge that you're part of. And the person looked at me and goes, you're Pat Moore. I go, oh, here's my credit card. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I will buy that ticket and stuff. So it's just, but anyways, thank you, Pat. That's, uh, I hope New Hampshire is going well for you right now. Live free or die. All right, we're going to take a hot second to talk to you guys about bomb holes. And we're not necessarily talking about this podcast. What are we talking about, bud? We're talking about when you get out there snowboarding and you bail. Everyone bails. I don't care what your skill level is, mm -hmm. right, Chris? Absolutely. I mean, Pat Moore, he bails. He does big old frontside 1080s. But you know what? You might not see the clip before. He probably landed on his back. Yeah, you know? same with Scott Blum. He bails. Reed Smith bails. Everybody bails. Everybody bails. What are you gonna I, need? I bail. What are you going to need to prevent you, the You're going to uh, need Volcom's ZipTech patented technology, which allows you to zip your jacket to your pants. What's what's the purpose of this? Why would you want that? Keeping winter out and your warmth in, keeping you dry, allowing you to stay out in the snow longer and shred longer, right, Chris? Absolutely. So we're doing a cool little giveaway. Do you know the details of this giveaway, buds? I do. If you do hashtag Volcom Bombproof as well as at the bomb hole and at Volcom, one of their team riders is gonna pick their favorite bail. And uh, you're going to get some merch from Volcom and Bombhole. Right? So if, if you're out there snowboarding, you're filming with your iPhone, and you uh, take a savage bail, it can be on a rail, it can be into powder, upload it on your Instagram and hashtag Volcom Bombproof, and a, a pro rider from Volcom will pick the best bail, and you're going to get yourself a little prize pack. So it's perfect. What else, buds? Um, if you do have ZipTech technology, your jacket and your pants connect, and this works with women's, men's, juniors, Old jackets, new jackets, they all work together. It's a great system. Stay dry, stay out in the snow longer, and have fun with the crew. Zip Tech is dope. All right, we got to get into something, Pat. This is, uh, these are, this is a hard-hitting topic. Hard-hitting topic. It's been discussed on the air, uh, specifically in the T-Bird episode. Now, we, a few years ago, uh, when I was drinking, we got completely shit-faced in Southern California, and uh, I was trying to get you... To foot race me and you you didn't agree to do it and then as we got towards the end of the night um say maybe two three a.m ish i don't know who knows um you said all right i'll race you and uh as i remember it i gave you a few car lengths 
um, head start. Just kind of, I started maybe two, two or three cars behind you, probably somewhere around uh, 50, 60 yards. And um, do you want me to take it from here? Do you want to pick it up? Well, I remember it was my birthday. Yeah, it was your birthday. Yep. 50 and yards. we were at Knuckleheads. Yep, we got tuned we up. We had a couple nights at Knuckleheads. It was great. A the cross um, Yeah, and it was, Kevin was there. Mm-hmm. Kieber was there. You were there. Hava Fernandez mm-hmm. was also there. I think somehow me or T-Bird, maybe T-Bird might have brought up that I, I am faster than yes. I look. He's got because he's got we were talking about the time T-Bird and I were hanging a cigarette at the office and we got attacked by the swarm of bees. <laughs> yes. I think this is correct. <laughs> this is, yeah. You are faster than you look for the record. Keep oh, th- thank you. The uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I learned from the barefoot runners of Kenya. Mm-hmm. I studied their technique of uh, how they took off their shoes. You removed his foot. And, and once they took off the shoes, I got bored and didn't pay attention. <laughs> but I, uh, no, we did it. And uh, yeah, and I, I made it like halfway to the finish. And I was still holding the lead, barely, but you were gaining on me for sure. And then my, as you've said it, and I agree, is my upper body carried more momentum than my wheels. <laughs> and I endoed, <laughs> you know, ass over tea kettle, head first. The Sonic the Hedgehog roll, for the record. <laughs> Rolled out of it. He turned into Sonic the Hedgehog. Came out of it all Terminator style with more speed than yes. I went into well, the Well, you roll. actually carried your speed. I might he have gained, come out of it. I think he gained speed. Gained speed. Gained speed. Gained speed. And he yeah, but running. you, with the fall... You, you beat me. Did well, someone end up in a hospital? Yeah, T Bird. Uh, but that's separate, the part of the story. T Bird ended up in a hospital from your guys' race. We ended at around three three thirty in the morning, and then somehow because T Bird used to live up on the hill above me, and it like two blocks away in San Clemente, um, and he lived off of Buena Vista, and then. Yeah, somehow T-Bird, I guess, skateboarding at 5 hit a rock morning. or something. Oh, that wasn't part of the race. Okay. No, but he's the one who who, who, who really paid the price. Mm-hmm. I fell, like, eight total shit. You did Sonic the Hedgehog. Did you beat Chris then? No, no. I, no. no. But I started regaining, like, the, building. This is the thing you had to realize. From my perspective, at the, at the time, Pat had, had very long hair, too. Oh, you okay. were behind me when I, I yeah, fell. Yeah, I was behind you. And, so he got a front row seat. He, I, was, I remember thinking to myself, Pat's got wheels. Pat's got fucking wheels, okay? <laughs> and, and, then, and then, like, his head is cocked back, you know, like a real good <laughs> running back. You watch in the NFL, they're back straight. They just kind of run, like, and I'm like, holy shit, he's got wheels. And also his hair is kind of blowing in the wind. I'm like, looks like a goddamn fucking lion chasing down some prey in the Sahara. And then all of a sudden, I see his, like, his, his legs can't keep up with his upper body. <laughs> and he does this tuck and roll. And I'm like, fucking, I'm like trying so, like, I'm dying of laughter, too, but still trying. Because he he gets up and he keeps running. Like imagine the guy next to you, just, like doing a son at the hedgehog roll, but still having to run fast. I'm like, this is like insane, you know. So, so wow. it's conflicted. One, you're like, this is insane. I might lose. Yes. Two, this is insane that he just totally ate it. And then three, I'm right back over your shoulder. Exactly. <laughs> and then going back to to that story, T Bird, he separated his shoulder, and then we went to the hospital. And I know this is uh, absolutely. Um, I, I thought I was completely gooned 
And uh, I went up to the the check-in lady and I was like, I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure I can locate where the labia is. And <laughs> I thought that was funny at the time. Uh, now I think about it. Now like, you'd like how, to apologize how, formally. How, I'd like to apologize to that lady. And I thought my material was like really, really funny. Um, <laughs> I think I actually maybe said that multiple times because I thought my material was so good. You but, just uh, kept saying it, <laughs> waiting for the laughter. <laughs> now, uh... Catch a rising star I have a, over here. I have an <laughs> open instance. Mic night open mic night. I have an instance with Pat. <laughs> open night at the <laughs> island. <laughs> Do you uh, remember when 218 pack saved your life? Yeah, you and I were doing the afterburn. We were in Mammoth. And we were trying to find it like an after party. We had one lined up at a car or something. Mammoth, California's beauty because you can buy beer until 2 a.m. at any gas station or convenience store. So it's like last call, 1.30, you know, go and grab yourself some party fixings. And, yeah, you and I were walking, and there was an open manhole in the Mammoth Village. <laughs> you know, <in> the manhole. <laughs> <laughs> I had two 18-packs or two 30-packs, and it was like a cartoon. It was like being in a old Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> One step, next thing you know, all the way down to waist deep. <laughs> and two 30-packs kept me from falling into the manhole. I probably... I mean, talk about luck of the drunk. I mean, luck of luck the drunk of the on drunk. that one. Man, that was a... Uh, two back saved my life. It's not always a horror story about alcoholism. Sometimes it can save your life. Maybe. But the... Uh, yeah, I mean, but that's... Those were... Those were... Those were days. Those were younger... Young, those were nights. But, yeah, nights. Uh, yeah, they weren't days. But the... Uh, yeah, nights it's funny when people, people are like, oh, do you get... Pretty drunk last night. I'm like, yeah, no, I didn't get drunk last night. Technically, it was this morning. Facts. <laughs> uh, while we're talking about T-Bird, let's get into a good old guest question from Birdman. Hey, what's going on, bomb hole? This is T-Bird, uh, Stony Buds and Gren Diesel. I hope both of you are doing so good, my dog. Bridges, just want to take a quick second and say thank you for everything you've done for me in my entire professional career. Working for you and with you has been an absolute highlight. I got a two-part question here. The first part of it regards the movie Super Troopers and the infamous maple syrup chugging scene. Pat, can you give us a little backstory as to where that might have come from? Secondly, Pat Bridges, who is the greatest hand planter of all time? Love you guys. Proud of you guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Ah, oh, that's amazing to hear. I mean, Tom, I mean, in fact, it matter is everybody on the team, but Tom, you know, as well, in particular. I mean, we ran tight for a while. I mean, one of my fondest memories of being at Snowboarder, and I think Tom would say the same thing, is uh, 2010 Olympics, Vancouver. Tom and I, just on a whim, were like, you know, screw it. We have press credentials. For some reason, we were in Washington for something, the Holy Holy or something, or maybe after whatever we just all of a sudden we're like you know what we probably can't get a place to stay anything but you know let's just look up rvs so we looked up rvs in leavenworth washington found an rv flew up to seattle hopped in an rv and just went rogue to the olympics and being with t-bird at those olympics was um 
one of the highlights of my career. And we did the Olympics the way snowboarding media should do the Olympics. And we were surrounded by some real pros, and we were not the real pros. And this is like Tom and I, like, who could write a story faster on our BlackBerry so that we don't, you know, like, st- in the stands during the event. I remember Tom, like, would pee off the side of the bleachers, and we'd get <laughs> yelled at for smoking in the bleachers. And then, you know, I remember Transworld was all, pro about it you know nick and annie and chris and all them would be like oh let's be journalists meanwhile me and bird and jeff baker and a bunch of us would hang out and be like we stayed and t-bird got so drunk one night during the olympic half pipe we were the last people to leave the venue we got a in it i don't know how they, we were able to get away with what we did i mean there certainly was security we <laughs> rode down from the venue because you had to park in town and take a bus up. We rode down in the employee shuttle for the Olympic employees. We were in the shuttle and uh, T-Bird's like, "Ah, where are you guys from? And this girl's like, oh, I'm from Russian. I'm from Russia. T-Bird goes, hey, you want to hear a joke? And he's slurring so bad. And I'm like, this is amazing. And the girl goes, okay, whatever. Tell me a joke. He goes, if you're a Russian when you go in the bathroom and you're finished, when you leave the bathroom, what are you while you're in the bathroom? And the girl goes, I don't know what I am. And he goes, European. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So God bless T-Bird and Lauren and Louie. And I mean, T-Bird made going to work a pleasure every day. I mean, I know he would, you know, he kind of alluded to that. But no, I mean, he made me look good. And it's not... He had that East Coast tenacity, roll up the sleeves. I love snowboarding. I don't need to sit there and be, it's not glory days. I don't need to be in front of the cameras. I don't need to be written about. I can be the one. And that's amazing. So anyways, his uh, question is, who is the best hand planner? And, and then he, something about super troopers, them oh, chugging, oh, chugging maple syrup. Okay. Maple syrup chug. So you look at it. I watched it the other night. I showed, um. Uh, my girlfriend, Jenny, the opening of Super Troopers, because a friend of mine who I've known since uh, the early 90s, mid-90s, uh, Andre Vipolis, was an actor in Super Troopers. He might be a Patreon member, actually, and stuff. But, uh, Stone, you know Andre. Yeah, I know him well. He was an actor in Hollywood. He was in the movie The Boiler Room. He was on the He's TV He's in the shows. first Sex in the City. One of them, yeah. 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 Um, but... He's in the first scene. He's driving the car in the opening scene when the guys are fucking, the super troopers are fucking with the kids can't, in the car. Pull like, over. I'm already, I'm pulled. already pulled over. I can pull over, you know, and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, so that's Andre. He, he looks the exact same, sounds the exact same. I actually, a couple he of years ago, <laughs> he's uh, got back into snowboarding. He pulled me out of the lift line on a pow day at Mammoth, and we've reconnected ever since, been to the launch, some of our events. Stayed with me in Mammoth, uh, like in May. He know. listens to the show too. So he'll listen to the show. No he's amazing. Awesome. Good dude. So, anyway, so in New Year's Eve, 1994, we were at a house party. And for some reason, you know, doing stupid stuff after like two in the morning, I decided to, and it was being filmed, to chug a pint of maple syrup. And it's on film, whatever, some East Coast movie. Um, you chug a pint of maple syrup, and I did it for the camp. Stupid, whatever. I'm not super proud of it. And, I, you know, I didn't get to sleep till like, uh, January 3rd, 1995. <laughs> Is that but a Vermont, I, uh, <laughs> Vermont, Vermont pint right there? It was pure. It was gold. It was That's like a. $30 it was drink nice, right yeah. there. Yeah. And uh, so, anyways, bottoms up. But then Andre's in this movie, Super Troopers, and, like, two scenes after the opening scene, 
they're having a race chugging well, that's right. maple syrup and super troopers. And the theory is it's been speculated that Andre or there's so I never questioned Andre whether there was some connection to because Andre's in the snowboard movie. They were, and Andre was standing next to me in the video shot. When Maybe I he suggested it, huh? <laughs> I'd never heard that. That's awesome. Yeah, so there's that. So that's the first part. And the second part, the best hand planner of all time, Scott Blum. Scott Blum. Woo! I, would, I was, was going to say that as well. Pardon the pun, hands down, Scott Blum. I mean, there's some greats. And I think some uh, uh, Scott in Detroit has got to be. I got that in the office. Scott we'll, Blum we'll pop in right Detroit, on the screen. your photo. And it's the cover blow up here. That from SFD has got to be the best, you know, urban, non-urban handle. And then the other one is Super Park one from a couple of years before was pretty outstanding. It was also a cover. You probably right? saw that happen live and stuff. It was one of those Super Park legend the, moments. The white T-shirt, cover. white T-shirt and uh, yep. no gloves. No gloves. Yeah, yeah. white T-shirt, no gloves. Snowmobile yep. towing yep. by no snowmobile. Somebody towing. tried to do it before him. And Dustin do it. The oh, story yeah. is Dustin Craven because Dustin's one of probably the top five. But mm-hmm. Dustin's like wanted to go and rave up at uh, the Whistler Ski and Snowboard Festival, so he was leaving Super Park early. So I'm like, you know, everything I've done for you, get you snowmobile laps, groom it, salt it, you know, clear the, you know, clear the session for you, everything to get you on that coping. I'm going to do tomorrow for Blum. And Dustin's like, there's no way Blum's going to get coping. I'm like, oh <laughs> well, whatever. Now Blum had some little challenge with <laughs> with the authorities. He wasn't even supposed to leave mm-hmm. leave California, and he was supposed to go to jail within five days in Bridgeport. Really? So he just muled himself up there and just went rogue. And came He thought in. he was going to jail for 30 days after that. So he's he didn't like, have to. fuck it, I'm going to go do a hand plant and then sit in jail for 30 days. Like it was like Feeling kind of good about himself. Listen, Gloveless is something with that in alley-oop because – one, he had to get off his toes. If you go up on the wood on your toe edge, like toe heavy, it's not like being on snow toe heavy. You go up on the wood toe heavy, you're going to go Spider-Man on that wall ride. I mean, I could talk wall ride hand plant theory all day long. You're going to go Spider-Man on that wall, and it's alley-oop. So he had to go from heavy toes to flat base, and he's a popper. Like, I'm a bit of a ride-on. I've started being a little bit of a popper to the coping, but he always up to it, which is the key, because a lot of other people tried to get that wall in Detroit, and we're and they would always lose speed because it's a rough wall. And where Blum actually was key is he would come in hot and pop up to the coping. And it's a very, Dustin does it, it's a very clutch. Like air up to it. Air up to it. And you'll see that that's what Blum does. But he's gloveless. Blum Blum also, the one, Blum has a characteristic with his hand plants. He's got, like, the opposite of the Rutland strong arm of Gunnar. He's got, like, the rudder arm, kind of like a Ben Ferg, where Blum will, will wheelie bar out with his hand on a lot of stuff, and he kind of does it on that wall. But it's amazing, and it works for him. And it's like some people might look at it as a flaw, but it, you also look at it as a style. And But him not wearing gloves on that exposed, untreated wood is, I mean, you get a, you could get, with that much momentum, you could get a huge splinter. Dude, sometimes nails are sticking out of those things. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, all right, I was trying. There's, It's funny. There's a uh, surprise. You know, it's not – nobody brought it up. But Pat and a couple other people were there. Eddie Wall was there. They used to do this wall ride in Aspen called the Aspen A-Wall. And this is probably the closest I've ever come to killing myself on a snowboard. And I was I, – I had a thing for years where I would count the number of different wall rides I would hand plant and stuff. And there was this huge one. It was about two and a half stories. There was a stage on the top of it, and it was all Lexan, which is slick. And it mm-hmm. had a nice tranny up, a couple wings, so you could air up to the coping. 
And I think uh, Nicholas or somebody a couple of days later might have gotten Wheeler gotten coping on it or Terrier. But I know like Dinosaur Jr. or somebody was playing on the deck later. But there's this wall ride contest called Aspen Wall. And I remember showing up and, and they start practice and they didn't have the snowmobile toes for practice yet. You know, lapping riders up. So all the riders were, were hiking and dropping. And I'm like, oh, God, this would be a nice one to get. So I'm just going to. And I don't like hiking. You know, it's it happens perennially, you know, like the Rick's Grantham Mall. That was the third try. That's in the Vans movie, stuff like that. I just overcompensate because I don't like hiking. And then I remember, you know, they started up the snowmobiles about 20 minutes, half an hour into sessions. And I, uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to hop on a snowmobile. And I get up and they drop me off like 10, 20 yards above all the other riders. <laughs> and I, I, I remember standing up there. I'm like, Eddie. Eddie was about to drop. And he goes, hey, everybody, hold up. Pat's going to drop. Eddie Wall. Yeah, and I was like 20 yards above everybody. By the time I got to where everybody else was dropping in from, I was in a tuck. <laughs> I was just humming. And I hit that low end tranny and G'd out immediately, went over the nose into a Spider Man, sliding on my stomach like 720 up the wall. My board, it's two and a half stories tall. My board goes over the coping and wings me back down. And I get down to the bottom, and everybody's like, oh my God, we just saw Pat die. (laughs) Straight up, and I'm like sitting there, and I did the wiggle. You ever do the wiggle where you're like, "Well, let's make sure nothing's broken. Let's make sure everything moves." I did the wiggle, and I'm like, "Huh, that doesn't make sense. How am I coming away from this unscathed?" And I just straight up tapped myself and was like, "All right, I'm good." (laughs) (laughs) And I go over and I sit down, and Andreas Vig turns to me and goes, "You know, Pat, you don't need that much speed." And I was like. I was like, no Typical. shit, Andre. <laughs> like, of course I don't need that much speed. But, yeah, so, uh, yeah, the wall, I'd say, blum, sorry to go off on another <laughs> two and a half tangents. But, uh, yeah. All right. We got to get into uh, another oh, yeah. little favorite of the show, which is the Pub Beer Crap Shoot, which is presented by Pub Beer, which uh, you just shotgunned previous to, to the... Yeah, we know they're microwave-proof now. Yeah, they're microwave-proof. Uh, how did it go down after after the microwave? It was, I don't know, it went smooth. I was worried that because it rotates, it might get shaken up. But otherwise, it was, I mean, let's be real. I've done it a ton. The problem is there's a shortage of aluminum, so they're kind of cutting corners with how they wrap some of the cans and some of the cans you'll see, particularly with microbrews. I haven't done it with the cans that are kind of like stickered. That might be a little bit of a problem. That's a true thing? They're out there doing that? Sticker and cans? I mean, he's been throwing beer cans in microwaves for a long time. Yeah, true. He'd be the guy to know. Well, no, they kind of wrap cans. Oh, they have like like a matte, like sticker thing that goes on microbrews. I haven't done, yeah, I haven't, haven't I mean, I haven't done that. This this is about I haven't done that since the first Obama administration. Let's be real. Let's be real. So, so Pub Beer is a huge supporter of us and, uh, you know, Ten Barrel as well as a supporter of Slush. Huge supporter of Slush. And they're, you know, these guys are basically supporting snowboard companies keeping money in our industry and if you're gonna buy a beer go get yourself a pub beer they are cheap fun beers and they're also microwave proof now let's get into the pub beer crap shoot welcome to the pub beer crap shoot so you got some goon gear dice in front of you you got them yep you basically you just ro- roll those fuckers, and whatever it lands on, 2 through 12, there's something you're going to have to do or say. We'll All right, so, so the 6 is the goon gear. Yes. 
We got a five. Would you rather have a tattoo designed by Grenier and tattooed by Eastone or designed by Eastone and tattooed by Chris? Well, we already had a conversation about Chris's aesthetic taste with the chicken nugget. So I w- with the six piece. So I would Great go board. with you. Well, I don't have any tattoos. Me neither. I'm just leaving my options open. I mean, who knows? I might want to get buried in a Jewish cemetery. I mean, there's some good real estate to be had there. So I just, you know, I don't want to limit my options in this life or the next. I um, have I would have I would have East Stone come up with the art, and you would tattoo it. That'd oh, be okay. probably a smart move. Have you ever seen East Stone draw anything? Yeah, but I can design it on a computer. What's it say? Oh, I can't that's computer a good point. That. Okay, yeah, solid. Yeah, I think that'd be a solid move. I don't think. I administering the tattoo would be more like drawing it. Mm, true, yeah. It's kind of a, I don't know if it's, we got to debunk this, but one time when I was a high cascade, uh, when I was a digger up there, I, we used to dig, do digger holes where you you uh, dig a basically a giant hole. and then Secret you, hole. Uh, yeah, and then you put a little, uh, basically a banner over it, and you cover the banner in snow. So you walk, and you don't notice, and then you step into a hole. Now, um you once told me in passing that one of these things destroyed your knee. Is that true? No, I think I told you you could have destroyed. I have a bad knee after you did it to me. Okay, okay, that might have been it. Okay, stuff. But no, I mean it could definitely affect. I mean, I had a bad knee, so I got my knee fixed, and so again, I blew it out in 1999. And I got my knee fixed in, uh, like, August of 2002. And then it took a little while. But I, um, like, a year later, so one thing that happened with the trauma of my knee, at some point I, I tore my meniscus. Luckily, I had still a blood flow where, the, where it was torn, and they were able to suture it back together. But I hyperextended my knee, like, 2003 or 2004, skating in a lift line and retore my meniscus. So for years, I would have... Knee problems is what people say, like my knee popped. It's like your meniscus tears on itself, as I understand it. I'm not okay. an orthopedic. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I know the triggers for it now, and it hasn't happened in a while, and I think it's, like, it's one of those things with a torn meniscus. It's like a dislocated shoulder. Like, the more you do it, it's super painful at first. Yeah. The more you do it, the less it hurts, but the easier it is to have it keep happening, and it just kind of – but also with me, it was, like, fatigue, dehydration, whatever. So I knew the triggers, but certainly I, I, to this day, I have a phobia in bars because a couple of times some drunk people bumped me and it caused my knee to pop mm. in bars. So to this day, I can't stand in a crowd like ordering a drink or anything. That's where it gets me into trouble. Cause I'll probably rather double triple fist. So I don't have to keep going through the crowds and getting <laughs> to the bar, but I don't go to the bars that much anymore, you know? COVID. COVID's going to close it, <laughs> close it all down. But no, so that's, that's, that's the deal with that. But speaking of hood, um, do you remember one of the earliest rec interactions I remember having with you is you lobbying me, speaking of hand plants, to run a photo of you doing a frontside invert on a porta potty? I was lobbying my own photo? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, I, 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 do don't, I don't remember this, but also my memory is. But you not remember the photo. I do remember the the front the front invert. Yeah, you're like, hey, what do you think of this? This has got to be great and stuff. And I guess whatever. That's my reputation for Ampli. Did that photo ever run? Uh, so we actually, who shot that? Chad O shot it, 
Perhaps, yeah. And what His happened? Academy shot, and yeah. what happened? It was like JB over at Academy and was talking to um, the guys over at Transworld, and somebody had told us it was going to be the cover of Transworld. Ooh, Ooh classic! So yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> it was. Move. It was like you know, and I was twenty. Who that's why you even, never yeah. tell people. And never tell and, a rider they might get the cover, and then, uh, and then or the brand, and or totally. The and so that was that was. But uh, it, yeah, if I did, I mean, I've done a lot of dumb shit in my days. So. I don't know if it was dumb. It <laughs> but, was pretty. Yeah. You know, I thought that photo was the shit. <laughs> there it is, <laughs> Caption God with the but puns. the other one. Do you remember the steak challenge? The steak challenge at Mount Hood. No. You don't remember the steak challenge. Yeah, I do. My, my, this thing fucking okay. concussion sucks. You don't ass. remember when you bought me a steak I do at remember. Charlie's? Oh, what was it for? Four hand plants in a row in the minute. Oh, you're right. Yeah, 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 you're right. I bet you, yeah. And you Which did it one of us run. could Chris do it? Chris likes a good bet. You were like, like hey, yeah. whoever gets it first, the loser has to buy. Yeah. I, and then did I pay up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah Charlie's prime rep. Bought a steak. Yeah, it was a good time. I'm, I got another Patreon hit question it. for Let's you. Let's hit it. Let's hit it. This is from, I love this guy's handle, The Piss Pigeon. Great name. And you're is it Piss Pigeon? Just piss, it's not Piss, piss pigeon. pigeon. It's not The Piss No, Piss Pigeon 3. Piss pigeon. Just Piss Pigeon. <laughs> I guess there's only one Piss Pigeon. Yeah, there's only one Piss Pigeon on our Patreon anyways. So uh, in your 25 or so years having the bird's eye view on the entire snowboard industry, what moment do you think changed or impacted it most for the better? Ah. <sighs> You know, unfortunately, I just think there's too many things that are kind of equally impactful than any one thing. I think there's a lot of things that are negatively impactful. And I think there's things like social media that are both good and bad. That way, you know, even each other out. But, I mean, I'm serious when I say, if you ask me that question in 10 years, I might say COVID. Yeah. Just because it's really, it, it was, you know, it was the inherent nature of being outside, out in nature, so to speak. And people needing to get that release, and people, you know, the the layers of of how the the outdoor boom. I mean, people being able to live and work remote, like, oh, okay, I'll you know not be in these, you know, you know, in these urban centers, and I'll you know move from the Bay Area to Tom, and I'll go make a couple laps at lunch or whatever. Being more able to be in proximity, all that stuff is is in the stew of what is creating a positive from a negative. Um, so ironically, I think it might be COVID. What's what is most? Negatively? I'd like the footnote that you said a good release. We love a good release. We love a good bundle. release. Yeah, we love releasing. Now, what uh, what what would you say? Speaking of Travis Kennedy, in, in, in be released. In, in <laughs> That's another kind of release. That's a good release too. <laughs> so, if you're saying in the past, however, you know your time here uh, in in snowboarding, what has negatively impacted the, the most? Well, I mean, equally, you could say reverse camber. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a know, twofer right there. Potentially. Um, it's almost a Louis Vito. Day, yeah, that is a kind of a I mean, because reverse my, camber. <laughs> yes, reverse camber. All right. Well, I will tell you, since you know, I'm going to age myself, I've been involved <coughs> in snowboarding since 84, 85. I mean, ski area acceptance, hands down, changed the game. Okay. There you know, we hands go. down, changed the game. Similarly, I mean, there's, there's a myriad of things that could have negatively impacted it but i think ultimately it's uh you know skateboarding you know skateboarding owns skateboarding you know yeah you've got your nikes you got your adidas's you got your red bulls and monsters but for the most part they actually benefit from the nikes and the adidas's with the exception obviously i'm sure pierre and don and everybody at etnies and dc would say different things but you know it's farm to table in skateboarding which is great 
you know, and then I think snowboarding, um, yeah, snowboarding's like I said, it's original sin was snowboarding usurping its own destiny to others and tethering itself to other industries and being not acquiescing to corporate ambition is probably the shittiest part of the sport. There's probably a lot more skater-owned brands, huh? There's just a lot. They're more. all skater-owned. I mean, yeah. There's 8 million little skate companies. There's you no know? corporate truck. There's no corporate skateboard. I mean, yes, Maybe there was. I mean, you could almost say... Uh, element to some extent, but you could also say when Alien Workshop was part of Burton and stuff like that, and and Billabong, Billabong owns Element or owned Element. Not sure. I think but, they're owned by. Yeah, there was something yeah, so, going on there. I mean, there was, but I mean, even then, that's like you know, snowboarding and skating, Kindred. You know, Billabong, surfing, Kindred, quick. You know, with DC, Kindred. You know, that's that's a lesser of all evils. You know, but. Um, yeah. So I mean, but I mean, straight up, like you know, you know, having you know Rubbermaid come into the sport, or you know, having the National Enquirer own a snowboarding magazine. You know, what the hell are we talking about? That true. Next uh, thing I want to cover. Super interested See in those bubs real quick. Favorite interview you've ever conducted? The one I'm most proud of, and there's a couple. I'm I'm proud of some of the Sean White interviews I've done. Two of them. Two of them were actually pretty, pretty momentous. Both. For him and I, and a lot of great feedback. One in, uh, I think, in 2005, and one in 2013 or 14. But um, those were great. My interview recently with Desiree, someone I'm very proud of, um, good friend. And then uh, Natasha Zurich's interview from back in the day is something I did that I was very, something about it really spoke to me. And here's a girl who's, every day she's ridden a snowboard. She, I mean, she was in exile from, you know, communist Poland and stuff, but every day she ever wrote a snowboard, she wrote in a journal, saved every lift ticket she ever got and stuff like that. Fascinating stuff like that and emotional. But um, the Jake Burton Carpenter interview. So Jake, God rest his soul. Let's give Jake, uh, what's super? the top tier? Top tier is a super air horn. Yeah, of course. Let's give Jake the super air horn. And the applause. Standing ovation from the bomb hole. Yeah, I mean, I hope I, I don't get emotional. I mean, he's somebody who I've been, you know, around. You know, he's been a presence in my life, either physically or, or you know, somewhat, you know, spiritually. Um, for a while, growing up in Vermont, I mean, to the day she died, my grandmother called snowboarding Burton boarding, you know, and you probably heard that growing mm-hmm. up in Vermont as well. My grandmother lived a little ways away from Manchester. We used to make the pilgrimage to the Manchester store, factory store, and just that's where my first board came from. And then all the way seeing him at the opens, this, that, later going to his house for the parties. And then, you know, where Jake and I, once I flew in and got a day with him, they were going to announce the Craig Kelly prototype facility. Everybody got stranded. So it was just me and person who worked for me, Laura Austin. And we were able to ride with Jake at Stowe just one-on-one. Started to build a little bit of a rapport and relationship. But really, we were, you know, just really didn't interact much. But that was a couple of years probably like 2010 or 11. And then, you know, when Jake was deciding to move the U.S. Open away from Stratton, I was kind of the most vocal um, person in the media to say, listen, 
you know, wake up. Stratton doesn't want us. Why are we still there? They, they're relegating. It's like we're segregated. Like it's 1987 and we're forced to be on the backside, the town, whatever. This event is getting worse because Stratton is pulling away from supporting it. You know, they're not all in anymore. So I was vocal about that. And when Jake needed somebody to kind of be, you know, kindred with him in that notion that he needed somebody to sit there and say the things he couldn't say about why it's a good thing for the U.S. Open to move from Stratton to Vail. And I'm going to get <laughs> pitchforks are going to come out on me when this comes out from the lifers back east. But it's a reality of it. And I would much rather the U.S. Open move to Killington. Problem is, Stratton sandbagged a lot of East Coast resorts, sitting there being like, we lose so much money on the U.S. Open. Before my dad died, my dad was trying to get the Stratton. He had a, he'd built a fund in Killington, like a tax in the town to market the area, and they had a war chest ready to go, like Vail. Vail paid for the U.S. Open. That's why you see Town of Vail and Vail Resorts logos on everything. Town of Vail pays Burton, and Killington had money to bring an event like that. And Stratton just straight up, you know, put the guy about, you know, sandbagged him and was like, no, it's horrible, it's this, that, and the other thing. And granted, Killington would have been totally different than Stratton. Killington has much more lodging base, 20,000 beds within 20 minutes of Killington, whatever. Anyways, Jake needed somebody, and that's where Jake brought me into his orbit. Nothing too close and stuff, but, uh, you know, so anyway, so Jake um, went through a lot of health problems. He had a full knee replacement. Um, he had testicular cancer. He had um, heart problems. Um, and then, you know, he, he battled through all that. And, and uh, you know, I, they might think it might have had to do with his knee surgery. Could have been a couple of different things. He came down with this disease called Miller-Fisher syndrome, which is very close to Gambare, which Gambare is coming up now because they're saying that some people with some of the vaccines are getting exposed to Gambare. It's like one of these weird neurogenetic diseases that just pops up. So Miller-Fisher um, affects the myelin sheath, which is the outside of the nerve endings on all your skin. And what it does is it erodes at that outer, outer casing. And I could be way off the mark, but I mean, I, I went a little deep with this. So anyways, he dealt with this and nobody knew exactly what was going on and stuff. And then when he was through the woods on that and started to really make progress on the road to recovery, Abby Young, uh, who is the director of PR for Burton, said, listen, we're reaching out to John Branch from the New York Times and you with the opportunity for Jake to tell the story of Miller Fisher. And this is really... This is a little bit revealing on stuff. And that first one, I'm like, oh, okay. And all of a sudden, through that conversation, she turned to me and she said something that changed the course of the whole interview. And, you know, I, I, she doesn't regret saying it now, obviously, how things transcribed, but she very easily could have, after the fact, regretted saying it. But one thing she let out in an emotional way, and I love Abby, and I, she's somebody I owe a lot to, and she's somebody I've strongly collaborated with. Again, she's one of those people who, points the mainstream media in my direction. She said, what if you could have interviewed Tom Sims the day before he died? So all of a sudden that changes the whole dynamic. I'm not just, you know, sitting there getting us, you know, puff piece about, because at the time I didn't know the full layers of how much Jake's struggle was. I'm like, our snowboarder's going to care about somebody dealing with some neuro disease, you know, like is an 18 year old reader a snowboarder going to care and, uh, but all of a sudden when she said that, and also the, with the testicular cancer, with the full knee replacement, with the heart, this, that, and the other thing, I'm like thinking to myself, like, all right, here's 
that's that's it. And I'm like, listen, all right, you said it, Abby. I didn't. But if if I'm going to do this, it's going to be on the record, me and Jake having that conversation. And I'd worked with Abby before on the Sean White interviews and came away from it where she's like, she knows the fair shake that you're going to get. And Abby's like, okay, let me talk to Donna. Jake wasn't in a place to really be that heavily involved in the conversation at that time. So let's, let's talk to Donna and stuff like that. And, uh, she knew I was going down that road and, and then, you know, she's like, so you, will you do it? I'm like, if, if it's on those terms, I will. And she's like, cool, I'll go to Donna. And I hung up and I immediately was like, what did I just say? You know, cause the thought is like, I was in the, all of a sudden it's like, this is Jake Bird. You know, odds are 99% of the people in some way, shape, or another have had a very direct connection to this guy, whether it's through boots, whether it's through bindings, whether it's through outerwear, whether it's through boards, this, that, or the other thing. I mean, and, and he went Johnny Appleseed from resort to resort to resort, knocking on the doors to get snowboarding allowed. The U.S. Open has launched numerous careers, you know. He go doing the lawsuit to try and get ownership of the Grand Prix Olympic qualifying process so it's not you know, jumping through FIS hoops, though it's largely that now, just at every step, you know, and he's not perfect, you know, and, and obviously, and early on, it wasn't, you know, now I am, I look back and I think, I wish, you know, what would it have been like to grow up in the shadow of Tom Sims and have, you know, a Kidwell instead of a Burton Air, you know, with the, you know, with the black top and the blue top, you know, like if I had gone the Sims route, as opposed to the Burton route, well, where would I be? Whatever. That's water under the bridge. But, you know, I'm like, okay, if I do a puff piece, all credibility is out the window. So that's a lose for me. And if I do a hatchet job and I'm, and I'm too pointed and too direct with my questions and I, and I put, you know, hold Jake's feet to the fire in a bad way, all of a sudden, you know, Burton pulls their ads, this, that, and the other thing, somebody's going to come down on me, I might get fired. So it's like, am I going to fire myself with my audience? Am I going to fire myself with my bosses? It's all up to Jake. At that moment, I said, yes, it's all up to Jake to, to be revealing, to play ball, to know where I'm trying to go with this thing and to be honest. It was the, it was, the cards weren't in, it, the, he held all the cards in this. And it, a moment of dread where I was like, I can't believe I just signed on to this thing. And that was in like October. A month later, I, or that might have been August or September. A month later, I go to Vermont for the fall bash. And I pre-interview with Donna. And I'm talking to his wife doing a pre-interview being like, it'll be this, that, and the other thing because, you know, and one of the things I say to Donna, and this is one of the hardest questions I've ever asked or said is like, and you know what, I want to talk about mortality. I mean, your husband's had heart problems. Your husband's had a full knee replacement. He had testicular cancer and now he's fighting the Miller Fisher. I'm like, we're going to talk about the mortality because it's not just his name on every piece of burnt clothes. It's Timmy, Taylor, George, his kids, it's his wives. You know, it's a family business. Is there, is there a Burton without a Jake? You know, that's something I got to talk to your husband about because a lot of people say, how goes Burton? It's how goes snowboarding. And Jake's wife leans into me and goes, it goes both ways. How goes snowboarding is how goes Burton. And I'm like, all right, that is... <clears throat> that is that strong, powerful woman that has steered the ship of Burton time and time again through the challenges her husband has faced. And it's like, but that's not easy to say, I got to talk to your husband about mortality and you inadvertently, you know, then 
he wasn't through the woods. He wasn't all there. And it, and it wasn't like a familiarity with Jake because you got to understand the Miller Fisher thing. He's lucky. He had a doctor. He started seeing double vision while he's on a treadmill rehabbing his knee. He had gone pretty hard at the U S open and just started riding again after his, uh, full knee replacement. He goes to calls up his doctor, his buddy. Um, and it was like, Hey, they're like, Hey, come to Copley hospital in, in Morrisville, Vermont. As soon as you can, um, we'll get you checked out because double vision's a bad thing, you know, unless you're drunk or something, but they're like double vision's bad when you're on a treadmill, whatever, get in here. He, the doctor had an inkling, you know, this might be Miller Fisher. Let's get some neuro inhibitors in there. Let's try and see if we can, I think it's neuro inhibitors, try and slow the spread of this thing. Cause what it does is it starts in the center part of your nervous system because it's born in the blood, but even though it affects the nervous system and works its way to the extremities. So they put him on this medication right out of the gate. That's a treatment for Miller Fisher. So what had happened to him is luckily they put him on that medication and it was a precautionary thing thinking, you know, there's a 5% chance it could be this. Eventually, because he was on that medication, it spread really quick. Within 72 hours, he was paralyzed. All he could do was move his hands, couldn't open his eyes, couldn't really do anything. He could wiggle his toes, but it, it had spread. But because they put him on the medication, it stopped it at the furthest parts of his extremities, which is like, you know, his ears, his hands, and everything that was involuntary um, started to shut down. If they hadn't put him on that medication, he would have had trouble keeping his breathing, keeping his heart beating, and all that stuff. But they also, by the time he had gone to Hitchcock Dartmouth Medical Center, he had, he had been incubated and put on stuff that would keep him sustained, you know. But he could hear. Um, they could have to hold his eyes open and stuff, and then, but he couldn't talk. So anyway, so I, I learned all about this, and he still was coming back, but he wasn't all there. Um, eventually, 14 months after I got the first phone call, or 10 months after I got the first phone call, I was out at Stowe a little bit after the 4th of July, and I spent four hours with Jake, you know, one-on-one, just talking it through, just me and him. It's funny. He's a lot like Sean White. They've got the, like, you know, I don't know if you've dealt with the people sitting in here, but a lot of, like, famous people have, like, with their handlers and stuff or their PR people, they have routines where it's, like, they'll get texts and be like, oh, I got to go. If all of a sudden, which you could be like, oh, we got to go, you know, because I'm going too long. But Jake would constantly get the text from Abby and, you know, hey, if Jake wanted to wrap it up, he'd easily respond to a text, be like, I got to go deal with this. But he kept putting it aside, kept putting it aside. So it was like three or four hours, just one-on-one with me and him. So then it transcribes. Edit it down. It's like 14,000 words. And I'm like, okay, here's to make it or break it. Is he going to, you know, and we have people, tons of people go in and sanitize interviews. I mean, this is snowboarding. I'm not going to, you guys edit. We edit. You know, it's not like it's verbatim. And it's snowboarding. This isn't gotcha journalism, you know? Yes, you, you put a lot of faith in the riders, but you're not trying to throw them under the bus. And you're thinking two or three interviews, two or three trips, everything together. I mean, a lot of people, I've had other journalists say, you guys have too much of a familiarity with your subjects. Well, screw it. We're not football, not baseball. This isn't politics. This isn't Hollywood. This is snowboarding, you know? We're not in the business of making people look bad, you know? That wasn't always the case. I mean, I'm sure some people would look back on stuff early on when you're young and angsty and you're full of piss and vinegar and say, fuck you to the world. We all deal with it. I deal with it to this day. But, you know, I let Jake see it, and uh, he came back to me with only 
one five word change on the interview. And that was the big exhale. Whereas like one, I had gotten the goods. He hadn't been cagey. He hadn't been guarded. He had been as frank as possible, like saying stuff about, you know, uh, selling the big box and how much of a challenge that was saying stuff about Thompson. You know, he talked about all of it and he was blue cursed said stuff that was, you know, probably cancelable five years later, but that was pretty dynamic to have that interview. And he told the whole story of the Miller Fisher. So incidentally it's called, yeah, it was Gary land photographer came out and shot the portraits. We had all these papers cause uh, my friend Evan had to scan every single one of these notes because he would have Jake always was a note taker even before the Miller Fisher. All he could do to communicate with his family for six or nine months was write scribbled notes that he couldn't even see on paper and be like water or itch or, you know, lovely or whatever. Or say buy, buy flowers for nurses, you know, buy donuts for nurses or whatever he would do. Or I love you, Donna was probably 200 pages. You know, hey, how is Timmy? You know, that's all he could do. So anyway, so Jake made it through the woods. He, he came back and all that stuff. So anyway, so that, because it was so consequential, so stressful. Incidentally, though, too, I was up till five in the morning with Evan Rose the night before the interview. You know, two in the afternoon, I need to be there by three o'clock, white knuckling it out to stove for the interview. Almost blew it just catching up with an old, one of my best friends who I used to live with. But it's like, you know, that's the, that interview turned out great, and it was all 100% due to Jake. And in turn, that interview went out to NPR for How I Made This, where if you listen to that NPR, How I Made This, it's pretty much the cliff notes of that interview and stuff. And that's happened before with Sean Way and other people and stuff. But in October of 2020, pre-COVID, or October of 2019, I got a call I'd started hearing from Burton about some stuff like, hey, there's going to be, you're on a short list of people who are going to get interviewed because uh, HBO and Red Bull Media House are doing an interview or doing a documentary. I, I don't have any yet. Maybe this is, no, I don't think this is violating an NDA. <laughs> anyway, screw it. You know, I'm not going to say any. I mean, obviously people know about it, um, maybe, and it'll be out soon enough. I think it's coming out a couple weeks after this, but um HBO and Red Bull Media House, I'd started to hear from internally at Burton, like Abby and stuff. Hey, Jake wants you on a short list of people. You got to get interviewed probably at the open or something for an interview with Jake or for a biopic that Red Bull Media House and HBO are doing called Dear Ryder about Jake's life. Okay, cool. And obviously they used the interview as source material and all that stuff. They just started doing the pre-interviews with Jake, pre-interviews, like not really setting up the light, not really doing, getting the audio, just kind of like fishing a little bit, trying to figure out what the narrative, what the threads they're going to pull are going to be. So I got that call. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, like, uh, you know, right after Thanksgiving, uh, Jake passed away uh, right before Thanksgiving, uh, 2019, Jake passed away. So they didn't have a chance to get him on the record for anything. So, they kept moving forward with the project and pretty early on the directors and the producers were reaching out and I was still on the list of people to interview. And I had Burton knew cause I had talked after Jake passed away, like, Hey, because there's this guy, Todd Coleman, I would love to give Todd Coleman an arrow. On. He's the Burton archivist. He's one of these people and he's an amazing guy because 
The history of Burton is also the history of snowboarding. So you'll see a ton of brand catalogs in the Burton archives. I mean, there's unreleased forum lines from after they dipped. Like they've got every snowboard movie ever made archived at Burton. Um, Todd Coleman, I was like, listen, I want to give you the raw audio for the Burton archive, which is like three or four hours of Jake and I talking. Incidentally, they didn't have a chance to interview Jake. And while it's not a ton of audio in there, but it's interspliced in here, I gave them the interviews. So they can't go back in time. He's passed away. How do you get Jake's words verbatim from the man himself? And so they did have access to the four hours of audio. And I've done three subsequent interviews for the documentary, which will be out soon. It's good. I was floored by the first one I saw. I haven't seen the picture lock version yet, but it's awesome. Great stuff about snowboarding growth in the 90s and stuff. But anyway, so short answer, that's the interview that is most impactful on me. And part of it's because of one, what he meant, how it went down, but also how nerve-wracking and stressful it was. One, getting to the point where we put him on the record and how consequential it could have been had it gone poorly. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Can huge, huge long story. Can you, that's a can, long story. can you find that um, interview on the internet or is it just in print? Yes. It's called a paper trail. Okay, cool. That'll be in the we'll show it, notes. Link it in the show notes. In the description of the YouTube And it's video. like 14,000 words. Killer. I'm excited to see that doc. That'll be, that'll be killer. Yeah. Um, that'll be absolutely killer. That's They that's, talk about Tech 9 a lot in it. Oh, yeah? No. <laughs> I was gonna well, say we had a lawsuit. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jake's like, you know, that Baltimore toe cap. <laughs> let's hit the uh, You're let's funny, hit, dude. let's hit some hot takes here. Uh, we just like the kind of common theme every episode. So the um, Michael Jordan of snowboarding, both easy me, Travis Rice. Fe- easy. You got a female and version. I do, um, but let me tell you about the Travis Rice. Why the Travis Rice is the one had Travis Rice. Th- People don't realize in 2000 and th- uh, 2005, um, there is an Olympic qualifier for the Torino Olympics. First one, Travis got third in the semifinals. Went out, did mushrooms, decided not to show up for the finals. Which means after the semifinals of the first Olympic qualifier for the Torino Olympics, Travis would have made the U.S. Olympic team in halfpipe. Instead, went out, did mushrooms, decided to take a different path. We're arguably all better for it. But here's a guy... Hit street rails, won street rail contest. U.S. Open, I was there that year. He did yeah, really well, others. Vans yeah. Triple Crowns yeah. might have some Red Bull heavy metal hardware, you know, and he shot clips. Obviously, we know what he did in park. He's got X Games. He's got Aaron Style. People forget about how impactful the Aaron Style was. The guy was innovating tricks, you know, and that's everybody's compartmentalizing him now, but he could have taken snowboarding in any damn direction he damn well wanted, you know? And just like they talk about how Jordan, when he was playing baseball, he was actually pretty damn good by the end of his time in baseball, mm-hmm. and he might have been able to keep going in golf and stuff like that. But Travis could have been the best. He could have been the guy who would have been the foil for Sean Wayne and Pipe. He could have been the guy who was the foil for people like Torstein and Andreas and Mark the Narc and Slope Style. He in big air. I mean, he was that guy. So Travis is easy. Women, Jamie Anderson. Great answer. Uh, dream session with three people. You could go with three people, dead or alive, doesn't matter. Who are you going with? Okay, I've been asked this question before. 
I'm lucky I've been able to session with most people, so I've had a lot of those dream sessions in real life. Um, I think Craig, Noah, Craig and Noah, hands down, because I never got a chance to, you know, maybe Jeffy, because Jeffy and I knew each other, and I owe a big debt of gratitude to Jeff and Billy Anderson for for really kind of accepting me when I got hired as a senior editor at Snowboarder. They somehow were like, listen, you're, you're a snowboarder, so we're down. We'll, we got you. You know, and I would go to Jeffy's house quite a bit. Jeffy was my designated driver a couple times, like <laughs> at the 2002 Olympics. And I was close, and, uh, and they, they liked the fact that it was, I was rough around the edges. But anyway, so it would be Noah and Craig, because I never really got Craig before he passed. I hadn't gotten my knee fixed, so I turned it down. But Craig, and I had loosely met him. Like, I see him on the North Island of New Zealand in 1999. I saw a board bag or a snowboard box, which you know what it looks like. It says C. Kelly on it. Got stuck on a carousel on the North Island in New Zealand. And I'm like, <laughs> that's got to be Craig Kelly. And sure enough, he's looking around for it. I had taken it off the conveyor. And I'm like, you're looking for that. And also at the U.S. Open in 1986, he ran into me because I didn't know how to I wrote a half pipe as if it was a giant slum. So he dropped in af- before me and ran into me. So you kind of rode with him. <laughs> you rode right, into he him. rode on me. <laughs> he rode on you. <laughs> but uh, but somehow, session. that kind of counts as a session. session. Yeah. I never understood why, but when he was pioneering Baldface, he would he had my email. And I look back on it now, and I think it's because of Galbraith or somebody, but he would email me, ask me to go, like, hey, Pat, I got this new spot. And we hadn't really talked or met in person. And, and uh, Slaznik I had seen here and there, but never really met him. I, I sat next to him on a bus in Aspen at the X Games once, but never really talked to him. So I guess no one. You didn't and say maybe, what's up to him on dude, the bus? I'm a grom at heart. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. Mr. Slaznik yeah, to you. Um, but no, I would have said what's up. Yeah, so those are, I mean, and I'm lucky. I've had dream sessions, you know. I mean, I remember being at the Arctic Challenge with Terry and, or even in China. Where Terry is like, these motherfuckers are putting, they shouldn't be riding, they're putting holes in it. And it's like, do you mind if I ride it? He's like, I'm not yelling at you, am I? And I remember another time, he's like, we're going to close. You better stop, drop, and strap in right now because we'll be done. I'm like, okay, I guess he wants me to keep riding. You know, stuff like that, I've been fortunate. Mm -hmm. Okay, next question. Who's your favorite person to party with? I had to say, Hana Beeman is a rogue element. She has chewed my hair before. <sighs> yeah, that's all I can say without incriminations. Like China. China. Shall I say China? She chewed my is, hair. She would. All right, years ago. So Oakley came out with the reissue of the Oakley Blades. And I got a pair. And I remember I handed them to her. And she like teased her hair up. This was a loon at last call. She teased her hair up, put them on. And I'm like, oh, my God, you look like China Doll from the WWF. She's like, I'm not China Doll. And I'm like, of course you are, whatever. And she's actually from Nashua, China. Um, within half an hour, she's like trying to break a chair on my back on the floor of the Woodstock station <laughs> in, in Hampshire and Loon. But yeah, no, she's fun. Hardingham. Hardingham's great because Hardingham would buy everybody around the shots and somebody would get like a shot of soap. Mm-hmm. And he'd always, you know, just doing stuff like that. I mean, he was brilliant. And you always had to keep one eye on him. Making Caesars <laughs> in the middle of the day at Super Bowl. I love Hardingham. Caesar and I had Station was all time. Amazing runs. And then Dustin. 
Because yeah. Dustin's wit was always yeah, super he's a funny. Professional and he was party. amazing. Um, Eddie's a classic. Mm-hmm. Your wedding speech was Pat Moore when you made an entire speech about uh, Eddie Wall Sr. <laughs> to introduce <laughs> Eddie Wall Jr. It was a great speech about my dad, <laughs> but uh, that was fucking awesome. What? Pat, at Pat Moore's wedding. Yeah. To in, Eddie Wall was making a speech, and you basically you, you, you mentioned a bunch of things about... Like like you're gonna intro Eddie Wall Jr., but it was about his dad. <laughs> and he says, "That was a great thank you, thank you for that great speech about my dad." <laughs> I don't even. Remember. I mean, I could tell you the Pat Moore speech uh, from his wedding verbatim, and you can find it on the IGTV for uh, Crab Grab. But mm-hmm. uh, Eddie's wedding, I gave a good speech because I officiated for Eddie and Saudi. I was their mm-hmm. priest. Uh, before we get out of here, we should definitely talk about your new. Magazine slush. What's going on with it? Uh, why did you start it? And what's who's on the cover? What's going on with slush? Uh, all right, here's the debut issue of slush. Came out a couple weeks ago. That's Miss Jill Perkins. Miss Perkins on the cover. Awesome cover. Shot by Oli Gagnon. Yes, shot by Oli Gagnon. Pretty outstanding. I think it's in Denver. Um, she's got an interview, feature interview, first feature interview in the history of slush. Yeah, others about before I get into the actual ideology, as far as the first issue goes, available now at the all 200 plus paper trail retail partners. It's free, or you can subscribe. You go to uh, slushthemagazine.com and uh, subscribe. Uh, you get an autumn beanie. Um, in that issue, our first issue ever, Stan Levier is our editorial director, did an amazing job. Kyle Sauter, our art director. Bob Possum Plum sat in this chair. So did Stan. Bob is our photo editor. We also have Justin Meyer and Ted Borland doing video. Max Tokunaga uh, doing social media. And Mike Goodwin, uh, former editor of Method Mag, uh, is our uh, digital director. But anyways, in this issue, we have an interview with Tony Hawk, who available now, I believe, or next couple days, hopefully not really leaking anything, kind of no, I'm not, is uh, Tony Hawk uh, is an interview in there, hyping up his Birdhouse K2 collab snowboards. I had a chance to interview with Hawk. It's amazing. He talks about Selaznik, talks about starting snowboarding in 1982 at Mount Baldy, just awesome stuff. Um, there's a discussion I did, uh, kind of fly on the wall style, with three generations of adventure snowboarders, with Jeremy Jones as the centerpiece, and Nick Russian as the young buck, and then the first writer of the year, Jim Zeller, starting, started writing in 1978. He's in it. I have a feature on uh, just sort of dissection of the pros and cons and the takeaways from a winter, sickest winter ever under COVID. Uh, Man Hankison has a discussion about avalanches. Um, Blake Paul penning a story of a recap from his perspective on uh, Natural Selection Tour. That's the first issue. You can subscribe now. You can go to your local snowboard shop. Also, Feel free, email pat at slushedmagazine.com. If you're a shop and you want to carry the mag, it's free for shops, free for readers. Yeah, so that's what's going on. But, yeah, no, I uh, resigned from Snowbutter Magazine in uh, early January, and for a couple weeks before that, I would kind of been putting the pieces together of what would be the next steps, the timing's right, you know, with Snowboarder Magazine and Atrophy, some of the other competitors falling away. Um, it was an opportunity to grab the reins and and. and Bring and keep it farm to table in the industry. It's like the mindset behind slush is a lot of it is like do what's do do what's what's right for the riders. You know, um, 
I mean, yeah, you got to make the sausage. There's a means to an end on some stuff, but it's also, we're starting from a core base, but it's not either situation. We are aspiring to be the hub for, for all riders to go to, to get scratched at it. HG8, uh, stoke you on snowboarding when you're not on the snow. Um, that's what slush is through all of our channels. We do a lot of events, but yeah, it, it's kind of, it's an interesting thing. I mean, when you look at brands like Solomon or Volcom or anybody like that, nobody ever steps back and goes, actually, how much are these brands? They do their part. They do great things. But the fact of the matter is snowboarding media, Torment, you know, Snowboard Journal, you know, the real endemic ones. I mean, you know, there's some snowboarding magazines that are owned by skiers in Colorado out there and stuff like that. But this is the stuff in snowboarding media that's really authentic, that's absent, driven by the riders and stuff. It really is all about you know, the money when you sponsor stuff or you advertise with slush, it's supporting an eight person staff. You're seeing your dollars working for you. You're not worried about subsidizing transport skateboarding or the money flowing out overseas or paying for, you know, whatever, you know, it really is, you know, anybody who makes snowboard products because you're buying the materials and the cores, you know, there is no such thing as a, a, of a, an edge company that's owned and operated by snowboarders. You know, there is no top sheet company that's owned and operated by snowboarders. You know, like I'd say, even at Snowboarder Magazine, 60 cents of every dollar that what came in from advertising dollars went back into the pockets of creatives within the snowboarding space. And then you look at Slush, as of this moment, you know, $25,000 has been put back into the pockets of riders via prize money. You know, that's more than Burton's given away at the U.S. Open in 2021, you know? I mean, and that's through the world quarters, you know? And that's to people like, you know, Nora Beck or Scott Blum or Brandon Davis, you know, Jill Perkins, you know? Like, that's one side of it. And then you look at, like, we're hiring, you know, people like Danny Kern to come and shoot photos because Stone caught a case, couldn't make it out to the world quarters, you know? Um you know, it is about showing the industry like, hey, what really are we putting our dollars towards? Because, you know, Zuckerberg isn't trying to do the same thing with Facebook. He ain't sitting there holding a contest and giving money to the prize money to the riders. And similarly, like a lot of brands will be there and like, hey, we're owner operator and, and this and that. But hey, you know what? At the end of the day, you only put 15 to 20 cents of every dollar back into the culture, back into the riders pockets, back into the core of our community. You're not subsidizing. And that's whatever it is, what it is. I mean, we're fortunate that all oh, we're, you know, granted in the biggest hard cost we have outside of staffing, staffing far and away is 60% of our budget. The other big cost is paper and shipping for the print mag. Otherwise it's all endemic. It's all intimate. So anyway, so that's what we're trying to do. And people are like, Hey man, you guys did stuff really quick. And it's like, maybe, and we're not perfect. And it's nowhere near to, it's just the first chapter of a book that I'm writing with slush. Um, and there's some missteps along the way, but ultimately I think people are stepping back going, Hey, we got a presentation in January, 2021. Goddamn rare on multiple levels. Does, does somebody hit 80 to 85% within nine months of the deliverables as far as where we're going to take it? Like think about events. We held three events. We held the game of snow, the world quarter pipe championships to show hands. In January 2020, for somebody like the kind to say, yeah, we got you on this. You know, God bless Colleen Quigley for this. But for them to come in as a pretending sponsor, even people like Ten Barrel or people like the Icon Pass to come in doing video and doing events. In COVID, you don't even know if that's going to be a thing. Yeah, you don't true. know what that's going to look like. So, I mean, a lot of people have come back and been like, well, they got a, they got a good deal. And you're like, did they? 
did they get a good deal in January? It's easy for you to say after they we we did great with the events thanks to the riders showing up in the resorts taking a gamble and hosting events with us. But you know, did they really <laughs> get a good deal or or were we fortunate to have them show the faith in us at the time, even at the level that they showed it? And that's amazing. And they were great and it wasn't a good deal. It was great for us and great for them. But anyways, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to re- rewrite the formula and the paradigm and uh, the formula for it. So, yeah, that's what we're doing. I got an amazing team, amazing level of support from everybody in the industry. And, uh, yeah, there's a handful of outliers who are playing wait and see, and everybody's got their camps. But, I mean, you know, sit there and be able to sit. I mean, I talked to John Stark, and Stark's like, what are the dates you're doing this? When are you putting this out? When are you putting that on? I'm like, here's where we go. You know, and that's great. And I'm a big fan of what Ian and them are doing, you know, and then like being able to work with the dust box and support the dust box and even, you know, being able to do in our first year doing a camp at Woodward with slush. It's, you know, but here's the deal. Why people think we're doing a lot. I don't look at it as us doing a lot because people don't realize for the last five years at Snow Butter Magazine, I spent 30% of my bandwidth trying to sell ideas internally to the power brokers and to the corporate heads, to people who weren't regular goofy, weren't necessarily, you know, had the same motivations I did. I spent 30% of my bandwidth trying to sell stuff internally before it ever made it to the audience, before it ever made it to the advertisers. Wipe that away. And it's like, I got, you know, I got a, I got somebody, you know, I got two bodies doing the same amount of work all of a sudden, you know? And it's like, that's been very liberating but at the same time, you know, it is a challenge, you know, and, and there isn't a lot of pie to go around, you know, and I hopefully, I mean, you know, it's funny, the transparency thing, you know, it's like I've always, you know, tried to be as, you know, whenever anybody asks me, I'm transparent, I'm pretty straight shooter, which is why I've been able to navigate a lot of stuff um, because it's when you have to skate and backpedal and all of a sudden it makes anything hence going forward you know so yeah we're 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 pretty transparent with everything and we're pretty uh pretty fair pretty even and it's really neat to ultimately be able to call the shots like you know i didn't have to go to committee to bring these double xl t-shirts we got some merch for stone kids got merch let's toss those over we, we are it. already sold out of all of our other merch, but these are limited. You had to be involved in the events to get those. Yes. Uh, I didn't give you a world quarter pipe t-shirt because you skated. By, by caught out. a case, he means a case of COVID. <laughs> Not a uh, court case, as per usual. Dope. But we are sold out of our double XLs of the regular merch available now on slushmag.com. Slushmag.com. Go get your merch. Subscribe to the Schmee. There was a time when you might have been an XL or a double XL, but Grindy's being an L is. Damn, son. That guy came up. Yes. Oh, pocket tees? Okay, that's a hitter. Well, well, beautiful. Uh, Before we wrap this thing up, Pat, uh, do you want to say any thank yous to anybody before we put a bow on this thing? I'd like to thank everybody who subscribed to Slushmag Magazine. (laughs) There it is. Uh, again, subscriptions available now. Um, again, any like to thank the paper trail. So the paper trail again is our 200 retail partners, everybody from, you know, Eastern border, the two locations in mass, which I know, you know, well, Fisk and Teddy and all those guys are big supporters to Milo and, you know, um, Canada, we have amazing partners in Canada, about 50 locations, whether it's empire or whatever, working with Brett and, uh, 
guys up at Source. But I'd like to thank the Paper Trail. I'd like to thank my staff. Again, Kyle Sauter, Stan Levier, Mike Goodwin, Justin Meyer, Max Tokenaga, Ted Borland, Scott Keating. I may not have mentioned Scotty earlier. He's mm-hmm. kind of our director of sales and stuff. Yeah, and then Bob Plum, photo editor. Um, and I'd like to thank Mark Sullivan for kind of giving me a platform all those years ago with EI and then carrying it forward with the opportunities at Snowbutter Mag. I mean, I was rough around the edges. I mean, if it was hard for them to make the leap to get him in there because he was rough around the edges, he really had to go to bat to get me in there, and that was amazing. Um, and I'd like to thank all the supporters, you know, the premium partners who came in and are really coming in at a strong level, the people are in on the events. Um, and again, anybody who's ever even picked up a copy, anybody who's given us a photo, even through snowboarding, you know, anybody who's ever, and God bless all those people who walk up to me saying, hey, I grew up listening, reading your words and stuff and you know, and then people like, you know, Terry for inspiration and then, you know, friends who I get Terry to ride Kidwell. with. Yeah. Thank you. And my for, dad. For everything I'd you've like done. to thank Great my dad. dad. I mean, people don't know it, but my dad, Killington Pico, when I started snowboarding and didn't allow snowboarding, my dad would drive 45 minutes each way, sit in the parking lot with a newspaper so I could go ride a snowboard at a two-palm lift hill called Sonnenberg. He would do that every day, and then he would call up Killington and be like, sick of driving, when are you guys going to allow <laughs> snowboarding? And they would condescendingly turn to him and be like, Teddy, I'll tell you the same thing we told you last year, we're never going to allow snowboarding. This is a ski area, not an amusement park. I mean, think about that. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that was Killington then. It's not Killington under Powder Corp today, which they're holding, you know, they're a great partner, and they have amazing stuff. But And everybody along the way, all the people who've been a part of the DNA of me and a rider, and you guys, you know, enriching snowboarding culture, culture on the regular and giving me an opportunity to come here. And as I said in the break, you know, like, you know, I've been talking about snowboarding for three decades, but four hours more that's <laughs> <laughs> true thank you for your passion and everything you've done for snowboarding pat well yeah. there you go stone thank you <laughs> and thank you <laughs> yeah no it's important to have the thank right. you for always getting your photos in eventually eventually <laughs> is the key word <laughs> well thank you guys so much for listening <laughs> thank you for making a hell of a board it's my favorite board <laughs> in, a six, bl- in a blind test. It is a, the favorite snowboard of mine in a blind test. <laughs> it's, not, it's not available anymore, I don't think, but get yourself a six-piece. It's a heater. But, uh, no, it really is important to, to, to have people that do what you do that care because snowboarding's in good hands, and so thank you for that, Pat. Thank you guys so much for listening, watching. We'll see you guys next week over and out from the bottom hole. Thank you so much for listening to our episode this week. But before we get out of here, Chris, what do we got? Well, we just want to let you guys know to write a review on Apple Podcasts. Hit the five stars. Say whatever you want. We don't care. Just write a review. That helps us out a ton. And then our usual stuff, check out our Patreon. You can find the link at bombhole.com. You can also find all of our store and all of our merch items available at bombhole.com. And mainly, and most importantly, Thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you, and we'll see you next week.